Today on Coco Disaster, I've got a brand new pair of roller skates and you've got a brand new key. Hi, and welcome to Coco Disaster. I'm Chorpsoy. And I'm Jay. And today, I've brought my friend the Jave Spade here Hi. to uh, talk in this single serving about a paranoia agent. I had originally planned for this to come out maybe a little closer to Halloween, but I don't remember how seasons work, but it's okay. Because uh, it turns out maybe this wouldn't be the right, it's not quite the same sort of like scary as I maybe thought it was originally. I, I mean, it, it has some horror elements, but yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it maybe doesn't fit the same sort of mood, I guess. But uh, hey, after watching it, I know what I'm dressing up as for Halloween. <laughs> oh no. But, uh, so, yeah, um, Paranoia Agent was, uh, the the one and only anime series by sort of famed director Satoshi Kon, who is probably known better for his movies like Perfect Blue or Paprika or Tokyo Godfathers. With uh, with this particular show, it was the sort of thing where he had ended up with a lot of unused ideas and kind of like character arrangements and plots that uh, he didn't use in any of his movies because movies have to be one specific thing through the two you know the two and a half hours through the years of work and he wanted to do something that was a little more flexible with his different ideas and his different plots that he wanted to do something that could really take advantage of the episodic format so it's not always the same mood the same tone throughout the entire work so there's sort of this one major plot in this story with a bunch of kind of B and C plots kind of interspersed, and ultimately they play back into the 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 main focal plot, but it may seem disconnected or it may relate to characters that aren't right on the the cusp of the actual like story and mystery. So uh, this was done also at Studio Madhouse, who also worked on all of Satoshi Kon's movies, and is a you know well direct uh, a. Uh, they're, they're a well-respected uh, uh, anime studio, having done a lot of work throughout the years. And so this aired in Japan in 2004, and then a year later aired on Adult Swim with their own dub in 2005, with um, a few edits done to it, sort of to, to reduce sort of the, the violence and sort of the, the disturbing imagery, because... Uh, this is definitely a, a show that sort of bases itself around more like psychological horror and terror, and it's it's definitely unsettling. Like I understand why even on Adult Swim, something you know, for like an older audience, this would need to be toned down a bit. Right. 
Um, but yeah, I uh, I wanted to do this just because it was like a it was a horror thing for what I had initially planned. But also like I haven't really like actually um, dived into the works of Satoshi Kon. This is it's sort of a thing that's kind of eluded me because I'm not super big on horror as as a general genre. But like the sort of psychological aspect of it kind of interested me, and he's so revered for his work on his movies that this was a good way to get into it and be able to to kind of discuss it. And I think after this, I've been, I've actually gotten a lot more interested in seeing his other works just to see what it's like when he's got kind of a more tightly focused idea that he's exploring. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to watch this just so I'd stop confusing it with Psychopaths. <laughs> just a, like a, a similarly sort of like style to show, I guess. Mm-hmm. And sort of like similar kind of name. I don't know. Mm-hmm. They're they're agents and psychopaths. I think. It, I mean, it happens. But yeah, paranoid agent very very different. Right. Very different. <laughs> very different writers. Very. Oof. Wow. But um. Yeah. So paranoid agent was sort of like a like a curiosity, and uh, I guess one thing that has made it hard to get a hold of is that like the the original rights holders ended up. Uh, folding like the the company ended up folding, and uh, no one no one seems to have picked the license up again or done anything with it. So like all the DVDs have been out of print since like 2006, you know, and uh, there's no place to stream it online again because of this whole licensing issue. So it's just like a really hard show to get a hold of these days. So it's you know yeah, just just finding it's the scary part. Yeah. Wow. Oof. The real horror is all of the uh, all of the sites I had to visit to find it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, for this uh, for this one, just to kind of give a, a more of a back and forth because I know I've kind of dominated uh, the other podcasts. Is we're gonna kind of do the the recap the recap and synopsis back and forth. So I'll do like episode one, and Jay will do episode two, like back and forth like that. And um, we both have sort of this huge list of characters because there are there's just a lot of people to keep track of and all of them are at least marginally important because each episode sort of focuses on a different set of characters so uh we're gonna do our best to sort of keep them all together we all have our notes to to help keep track of all the different players in this story mm-hmm yeah And so, let's start right off. So, episode one uh, is Enter Little Slugger, which is sort of our introduction to the main plot and conflict going on in the story. And it opens up with this sort of scene, uh, like a montage of people on the phone dealing with business and sort of the the, the main um, through line for all of their discussions is that they're all sort of placing blame uh, for their work on other people. Like, oh, it's not my fault this happened. You can't make me take responsibility for this. Or, like, there's a guy in a truck who's just like, oh, traffic's so bad right now. I can't possibly make it there in time with the delivery. Sorry. And he's just, like, sitting in his truck parked on the side of the street. Right. It's classic millennials before that was a term. Ugh. I can't believe them. But um, at the same time, we see, or we end up cutting to a woman named Sukiko Sagi who is an illustrator at uh, some kind of toy company. And 
she just ended up making this very successful mascot, like a, a dog creature named Maromi. And now she's been put under a lot of pressure from her boss to come up with a new design. And she's coming up on the deadline. She hasn't been able to come up with anything. And to make it worse, the workplace environment for her is kind of bad. A lot of the employees don't seem happy with her. They seem to think that the success has gone to her head, and that's why she's being so obstinate about coming up with a new design. Yeah, they're they're kind of catty. And uh, Sagi is um, just sort of... She's very, like, plain and quiet, sort of. Yeah, she's, she seems withdrawn about this. Like, she doesn't seem comfortable with the fame that she's gotten either. Mm-hmm. And so and she ends up going back on her way home, and she sort of... While she's going, she thinks to herself, she she wishes for a miracle, something that would help get all of this, the stress off of her. Um, she ends up running into this old woman digging through the trash. It's sort of this unsettling character, and the, the old woman ends up disappearing uh, as Tsukikosagi kind of passes and looks back. And she freaks out and starts running back home and ends up tripping. And while she's on the ground, sort of like trying to gather her stuff, like her character sketches, she ends up attacked by this this boy on roller skates with a like a crooked bat. And a big smile. And a big creepy smile. And so so it, it kind of cuts away right as the impact goes. And we find her now at the hospital. She's not dead or anything. She was just attacked, and I think her leg's broken? Um, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure, like, she's hit in the leg. Yeah, it's at least taken some damage. Yeah. Yeah. And so, she's now under care, you know, she's being taken care of, everyone's worried about her, and while she seems really shaken up, this this comes across as sort of her ideal miracle, in that no longer are people kind of... Uh, bugging her to get this, you know, to get this character figured out. It's now yeah. everyone's doting on her, kind of trying to make sure that she's okay. She's got a lot of pressure off her shoulders. Yeah, so that she's gotten attacked or something. I think she describes the uh, the character that went against her as like uh, having it was a it was its child with a baseball cap, uh, a big smile, a crooked bat, and golden roller skates. Uh, meanwhile, in the lobby, we meet a new character, and this is, um, Akio Kawazu. And Kawazu is sort of this, um... He's a reporter. This, like, gossip like, reporter. Yeah. yeah, he's a reporter for, like, a gossip magazine. And we find that he ended up, in some way or another, um, causing this this older man great harm. I think it's, like, through a like a car accident or something? Yeah, that's what I think. And so he's forced to pay this man's hospital fees, and he's constantly trying to put it off and try to, you know, skirt away blame for not having the money on time and not being able to make these payments. And so uh, he's, uh, we see him, and then we see also um, these two detectives, uh, Keichi Ikari and uh, Mitsuharu Maniwa, who are sort of investigating the the case of Sukiko Sagi. Um, Keiichi seems pretty, like, suspicious of Sukiko, like, oh, this seems really convenient that this person attacked and just ran away, and this seems very strange to him. And meanwhile, his his partner, Maniwa, isn't, you know, isn't so uh, suspicious about it. It seems like, oh, you know, this is just 
you know, sometimes kids act like this, you know, they're right. They have problems. And they they even bet a, a dinner on it. Yeah. So Kawazu, it, have, hearing over this attack and everything, kind of decides to to kind of be like a vulture. He's tr- sort of trying to find information now on this and get his way to get some um, information on Sukiko and kind of, you know, write his rag piece on her. And we get an idea of just how sort of like nasty he is. Because he borrows a computer from a couple of kids, I think in the hospital, mm-hmm. uh, to to get this information, and then to, um, to to sort of like reward them for helping him out, he he like downloads porn for them. Yep. <laughs> Which wow, oof. But um, and it's it's funny watching this because it is very sort of like early internet. Like they are downloading this picture of a naked lady off of like dial up or something right of like how it, slow it, it seems to like it comes in from the top like uh somebody's like doing a curtain yeah it's it's kind of fascinating to see sort of that uh, almost like relic at this point so um meanwhile we see sort of this uh we see a news report saying that just in general juvenile assaults are on the rise and uh a bunch of people are interviewed talking about why they think that kids are attacking people you know sparked by this little slugger thing i guess we didn't say that i guess they're going to refer to uh this this attacker as little slugger mm-hmm. this comes later in this episode but it's easier just to refer to him as that as we go along. Or Shonen Bat, if you watch the original oh, Japanese. yeah, if you watch in Japanese, as Shonen Bat. But Lil Slugger is a really good localized name for that. Yeah, I, I think I honestly like it better. This whole dub is actually very good. Yeah, the, the voice acting is really well done. A lot of, like, really big names, people on it. And also, like, I think that the localization choice, like, Lil Slugger gives an idea of sort of, like, a little bit of menace to it. In the way that, like, like Bat Boy wouldn't, you know, in if we just directly translated it, right? People would think he's like that dude from the tabloids or something. Yeah, and oh, right, I almost forgot about Bat Boy. <laughs> Honestly, Goodness. it might have been a better anime. Yeah, so they're sort of blaming these juvenile assaults on the, the sort of the these uh, juvenile assaults on the recessive society and sort of the troubles that Japan is having in general. And they interview some kids about it, and one of the kids is like, I think little Slugger should play video games to help get it out, you know? That's what I do. I don't get violent because I can be violent in video games. <laughs> Meanwhile, other news stations are like, I think video games are the problem for this violence. Like, they're, you know, they're causing people to act out kind of thing. And so, um, uh, someone to the detectives notes that the, the old woman that Tsukiko had uh, seen before was there at the time of the attack and the the two detectives go to interview her and when they get there they find that Kwazu is already there claiming to be helping the investigation and it seems like Kwazu and like uh Keiichi have sort of this history with each other like they seem very like Kwazu's like oh I'm helping the investigation I'm just you know working like you guys and Keiichi's like very mistrusting of him and sort of like knows that he's sort of trying to meddle in this this police business. I mean, since he's a gossip reporter, it's it seems like something that he would have done before. Right, to sort of, like, meddling his way into a case to, you know, write some kind of, like, dirty story on it. Mm-hmm. Then we go and we see that Tsukiko has been left let out of the hospital, 
and she's living back in her apartment and she's on the internet, um, kind of looking up stories and like different online threads about this attack. And it seems like there's a lot of kind of mixed reaction. There are a lot of people supporting her, hoping that she gets well. And there are a lot of people calling bullshit on her and sort of like assuming that, you know, she attacked herself or something else like that and is stressing her out. She seems to be uncomfortable. But the Maromi doll that she has, her mascot character, comes to life, um, to which she's completely unfazed. It was, re- <laughs> it's really unsettling yeah. as this Maromi dog kind of gets up. And it's, it's, it's because the movement is very, like, kind of fat. Like, it has a lot of weight to it, as if it's sort of this horrible monster trying to learn to walk and stuff. Right. Like, it, it looks like something is inside the doll moving it, and it's, Completely terrifying. Yeah, and so Maromi tells Sukiko that, you know, don't worry about this. Everyone's just jealous of her sudden success and popularity. As long as, you know, it's the truth that, you know, that Sukiko is telling, that's all that matters. Um, Mr. Kawazu, in his sort of, like, investigation the next day, uh, stops her on the street on her way to work and gets rejected, but... He, at the, uh, the crime scene, found one of her character sketches and uses it sort of like as a way to get this interview, like, I'll give this back to you if you give me some information. And he says he found it at the, the old woman's house. So Kawazu sort of does this interview with her, kind of doing a bunch of leading questions, trying to figure out the actual story. And through the whole thing, there's a lot of really sexual vibes coming off of him like he gets an he gets like an ice cream shake during this thing and eats the cherry and then like bends the cherry into a knot with his tongue Mm -hmm. like apropos of nothing just licks the entire like side of the whipped cream on top it's yeah it's really gross it's it's not pleasant right like you especially get how like unprofessional and sort of scumbaggy he is from all this um, so he, he talks to her and he's trying to do these questions and he's talking about sort of the, the work gossip that, you know, that she's been a victim of, uh, and eventually gets to the point where he starts pressuring her to admit that she did it herself, that, you know, there was no attacker. And eventually she kind of like curls up and freaks out because she seems to feel the atmosphere of the assailant again. Seems to feel like Little Slugger's there again and sort of completely shuts down. But through this attack, she ends up with more information for the detectives. Like, she remembers more about the person who attacked her and everything. And with this extra information, suddenly more people start to believe her. Little Slugger info is passed along as both, like, gossip and as, like, legitimate news. And through this whole thing, Kawazu continues to stalk Sukiko hoping to to get more uh, material from her in order to write his his piece, um, including and going to her apartment directly. When she sees that he's at the apartment door, she runs away feeling threatened, and Kwazu is sort of trying to keep up with her as she runs away. At some point during the 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 uh, the chase, I guess, Sukiko drops a a uh, handkerchief of hers. And when Kwazu stops to pick it up, he is attacked by Little Slugger. Then, uh, 
not knowing this, uh, Sukiko keeps running and eventually, um, trips again and Lil Slugger kind of confronts her directly, just kind of appearing in front of her. And she, he says, he just basically says like, hello to her, like, or hello again before he just skates off. Wow. What a badass. And that's sort of, and that's how the first episode ends. So we're kind of introduced to our main characters. We have Sukiko Sagi. The, the first victim and the creator of Maromi, which will come into, uh, come to be important later. And we meet Maromi, who is a sentient doll, it seems. Right. We meet Little Slugger, the attacker. And we meet the two detectives, Keiichi and, um, Mitsuhiro. Mm-hmm. Who will continue to be on this case. Right. So, episode two, uh, Jay will take over, but it's, uh, it's called The Golden Shoes. And this is sort of the the first spread of the little slugger phenomenon, right? So, um, episode two was before I took really detailed notes. So the only real notes I have is Ty from Digimon is an asshole. <laughs> so um, let's set the scene. We've got um, a kid named one second um, Yuichi Tyra. Yeah. Yuichi Taira, uh, Ichi for short, which means one in Japanese. Right, because he's number one. Right, he is number one. He is the most popular kid in school. Everybody loves him. Uh, he's great at baseball with his cool golden bat. He always skates to school on his golden rollerblades. And, and everyone wants him to be student council president. Right, and also, he's got a winning smile. Boy, does he. Every time he smiles, it's got a little sheen on it. Right. Yeah, he's a popular student. Everybody wants him to be student council president. But, you know, golden rollerblades, golden bat, uh, big smile, sort of reminds you of um, Little Slugger. Yeah. And it reminds everybody else of Little Slugger. <laughs> and everybody thinks Ichi is Little Slugger. Um... So he walks into school one day and everyone is just like ignoring him. He doesn't have any love letters in his uh in his locker. And everyone sort of like accuses him immediately of being little slugger. Except for uh one person, Shogo Ushiyama, or Ushi for short, uh, uh who is um he's a student that recently moved to the city from the country. He's kinda he's kinda porky, he sweats a lot doing sports. And he's poor. That's yeah, also something that's brought up. He's poor. And Ichi fucking hates him. <laughs> he's so fucking sick of this kid. Kid's smart, and he's been getting a lot of attention as the new kid. Mm-hmm. And he's also running for student council president. And he might win it because everybody thinks Ichi is the, the little slugger now. And Ichi just, he hates this guy. Ichi even assumes that, like, Ushiyama spreads some rumor about him right. towards the school as, like, an intimidation tactic. Yeah. And um, one thing we, we learn here about Ichi that we'll play in eventually later is that while he's smart, he does have a, a, a private tutor named Harumi Chono, who seems to be, like, a college aide, someone who's, who's uh, you know, going for higher education past college. Right. And he's just kind of, he just kind of complains to her about the whole thing. Yeah. He seems to like take a lot of solace in her and yeah. just sort of like talks about his emotions. 
Right. It seems like he can only really open up to Harumi. And it's it's going to be Ichi's birthday soon. And he's he he really wants everybody to come to his party, especially uh, Harumi. Right. He seems to have the hots for Harumi. Yeah. And I mean, while he doesn't want others to be involved in this whole situation, he doesn't want to talk about his issues. He knows that his reputation is just shot forever if nothing happens. And so he tries to handle it himself. Mm-hmm. And so he takes Ushi behind the school and sort of roughs him up. And he's like, ah, I know you've been spreading rumors about me being a um, little slugger. And like, it doesn't seem like Ushi actually has anything to do with that. Right. He's very scared from this attack. Like, yeah, it doesn't even seem like the kid's got a bad bone in his body. Um, mm-hmm. But um, somebody takes pictures of them. Is it? Um, yeah, someone, t- someone takes a video of them on their like flip phone behind the school. Right. And starts sending it around to all of the students in the class. I was just going to make sure it wasn't a named character. I didn't remember. If uh, I don't think so. Okay. But yeah. So like during class one day, everybody gets a message on their phone. And it's just Ichi bullying Ushi outside of school. And it, like Ichi's reputation is just shot even more. <laughs> just even worse. But Ushi like stands up and he's like, oh, oh, no, we got somebody's trying to blackmail Ichi. We got to we got to do something about it. It just pisses. It just pisses Ichi off even more. Uh right. Like he's he thinks that Ushi's trying to do this like noble sort of thing to kind of like improve his look in front of people, and sort of like has these like weird pseudo hallucinations of just all of the students kind of like turning against him, and you know Ushi being like, "Ha! This will really ruin him because now he's blackmailed and I look cooler." Yeah. So then. Ichi just starts wishing that, like, somebody, anybody, would take out Ushi. Uh, first, he's pulled in for questioning. This is the birthday bit. Oh, right. Yeah, so Ichi is eventually pulled in for a questioning by the two detectives. And, that, like, through, through the whole thing, it ends up that they drop him as a suspect. They don't believe that he's going to be Lil Slugger, even though he has the skates and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and he thinks he's in the clear now, like... You know, the rumors are gone. You know, they've they've officially counted him out. So, like, why does anyone have to hate him anymore? Yeah. But it, it turns out children can be cruel and they start, like, vandalizing his, like, posters for running for student council. Yeah, they draw him as Lil Slugger. Mm-hmm. Like, replacing his name on his cubby with Lil Slugger. Mm-hmm. And it's just, aw. He's a poor kid. And then no one comes to his birthday party. Yeah, it's just uh, Harumi and his mom. It's like, yeah, Ichi is like a total prick and a half throughout this entire <laughs> episode. But like, I still kind of felt bad for him in these times. Yeah, because I mean, he doesn't deserve it. Like, <laughs> yeah, like he's just a little kid. Yeah, like I, I have a note here. Just like there has never been a scene like this where I'm happy that like an asshole gets their come up. And so, like just really depresses me. The idea of an empty birthday party. Mm-hmm. The only person who still even talks to Ichi is Ushi. Right, and he fucking hates him. Yeah, he hates him so much. And they're they're walking home from school one day, and then 
Uchi gets hit by a little slugger. Just like, just zooms down and Ichi, he realizes this is his opportunity. If he catches little slugger, then nobody will think he's little slugger anymore. Right. Because like, actually, people have been more suspicious of him as little slugger since the cops talked to him. Like, it got worse. Right. Um, so he, he runs after him, runs after him, runs after him. Just can't catch him. Like, he's just a little kid. He doesn't have rollerblades. What's he gonna do? Right. Well, I mean, he does have rollerblades. He just wasn't wearing them. He threw them away earlier, in fact, just to, like, try to separate himself so much from being a little slugger. Oh, right. So, now, like, basically everybody thinks he's little slugger, because, I mean, who hated Ushi more than just Ichi? And... Right. Ichi actually, like, just stays home. He he doesn't go to school, and he starts, like, actually having, like, stress hallucinations. Right, like, his mom forces him outside to go to school, and he knows that as soon as he leaves, everyone's just going to continue to sort of, like, bully him and treat him like a subhuman as if he is the, the attacker. And his hallucination just gets super strong with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Right, like, it gets super distorted, and then he sees Little Slugger, and bam he gets it. Yeah, he gets hit. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, man. Uh, one thing about this episode, also, uh, Ichi's theme is maybe, like, the, the coolest song on the soundtrack. Oh, yeah, it, it slaps. Like, it's a really good sort of, like, kind of hip-hop-y sort of electronic beat. It's, like, really good. Unfortunate that it's for the biggest wiener in the in the cast. I, I think this episode shows off some like really cool like just like editing and transition techniques that I I really enjoy. Like there's a part where um, Ichi like walks in, he sees Ushi's poster on the wall, and it's like a crayon drawn picture of himself. And then like mm-hmm. he sees the picture start talking, but it's really actually just Ushi's right next to him. Right, and then also like the 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 cool transition of uh, as kids walk by um, Ichi's uh, campaign poster, a new drawing appears on it. Like so, there, there there's these transitions where it kind of wipes with a character, and once they move away, you see more graffiti on his uh, on his poster of him. People calling him like a murderer and drawing him as little slugger. Right, it's a cool little effect. Yeah. And also a bit where, um, sort of as Ichi chases Little Slugger down to try to capture him, he, he's stunned because he sees himself in Little Slugger. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Yeah, like, the, uh, Little Slugger turns around and kind of comes at him and he sees himself, and then Little Slugger disappears the first time. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so episode three is Double Lips, and this is sort of where the cast connections become more defined sort of the, you know, the, 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 the secondary cast sort of starts to fit in between each other. And we see the first real exploration of one of Satoshi Khan's kind of more famous explorations in his works, which is sort of like the, the um, kind of distorted uh, perception of reality versus fiction, sort of uh, the, the blurred line of what is and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And we open up episode three with this big fat otaku dude getting laid. Oh, yeah. And uh, after he has sex with this call girl, 
he turns he turns to his uh, anime figures that are just lining his walls and shelves, just tons of them, and like congratulates them <laughs> for watching him. Well, no, I th- it wasn't so much that he for watching them. He was pretending that they were the ones he was having sex with. Right, and he's like, oh, you did the best of all, as he picks up one of them. Mm-hmm. It's, like, real gross. And then, uh, in the background, the lady uh, just walks away, because <laughs> he's so distracted now. But uh, this is uh, this woman's named Maria, and she works for, uh, like, a call girl service. And so she's doing her rounds at night. And we find later, as she comes home, that... Maria also happens to be Harumi, the tutor, wearing a wig and, like, a fake beauty mark and all these different things to sort of uh, change her identity. And it comes across as sort of this multiple personality disorder sort of thing going on. Because she's leading this double life, and the only way that Maria and Harumi seem to be able to contact each other is by leaving messages for each other. So, like, uh, Harumi will leave a message that says, like, who are you? What are you doing in my body? And Maria will be like, you know. Oh, it's my body. Yeah, it's my body. I was here first. You need to come to accept it. And so there's definitely some kind of crisis going on with this girl. And so we see Harumi in sort of her everyday life. She works as, like, an aide to a, to a professor. And she's also still visiting um, Ichi in the hospital uh, to make sure that he's okay. And Ichi, I mean, ultimately, uh, Ichi seems more more or less happy with his predicament. Right. Like, he's not really suspected anymore because he got, he got slugged. Right. Like, he's, he specifically states something like, you know, little sluggers set him free. Because he got attacked, he can't possibly be the he can't be the attacker anymore he can't be the assailant and meanwhile the uh keichi the detective still believes there's some sort of connection back from sukiko to little slugger and is trying to figure out how sukiko relates to ushiyama how it relates to uh ichi and so uh harumi and maria are kind of still at odds with each other. Harumi doing sort of her her educational work in life and Maria doing her call girl stuff. And the way that the the messages and discussions between them go, it seems like Maria is almost like disappearing from uh from the body and is using her final time to kind of enjoy herself, to live how she was and um and sort of hopes that Hrumi will find where she's belong and be happy. And eventually, uh, this teacher that uh, Hrumi works for, this professor, uh, asks her to marry him. Like, for the viewer, it's it's very out of the blue. And I actually, it's something that I really like. It almost feels like you spend more time knowing, getting to know who, like, Maria is just, like, working with than you do knowing this teacher that just asked to marry Harumi. Right, and their their relationship doesn't even seem like it's it's at all romantic or anything more than this girl works for him. Mm-hmm. And it just, it kind of comes out of nowhere. I was surprised, like, it took me a second to be like, oh, so this is a professor that she's working with. They're both, like, you start to make those connections yourself. So, uh, Maria um, starts announcing to some of her, I guess, more 
popular clients that she's going to eventually quit her job and that she's going to leave forever. Yeah, it seems to to bum them out kind of. But Yeah, um there's there's one in particular who is sort of like this this bigger dude who who like refers to her as like his favorite and like they kind of do some kind of like freaky shit um at like as like a going away celebration. Mhm. Like they do this weird role play thing. He's like, "Oh, call me daddy." Um <laughs> but Maria's quitting her job. Harumi is sort of packing all of Maria's stuff away. And so there there's a preparation for Harumi and the professor to get married. Um but Maria ends up coming back after uh Harumi throws all of um Maria's stuff away and she leaves a message saying how much she just does not appreciate Harumi's attempt to get rid of her so suddenly. Right. And how like she talks about how she's the real one. Right. And so there's sort of this and so it sort of becomes a little more hostile between the two of them. Right. They're both throwing each other's junk into the 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 trash and and it's really complicating this whole marriage thing, you know. Right. First of all, this dude's way boring. Yeah. He's he's a lot older, he's a lot more boring, and Harumi hasn't even told him about her psychological th- stuff. Right, we we see her later, like, with a, with a doctor, um, and this is like, yeah, I haven't told this guy about the fact that I have this multiple personality issue, which we, we see a little bit earlier in the episode, sort of, you know, talking about her relationship with Maria uh, to this doctor. And, you know, doctor says that for support, she should probably talk to him about it. But, uh, you know, she, she seems very uncomfortable with it. And here's something I didn't realize. Um, I guess in Japan, there's an option to do picture-only weddings. So sort of like you, you get the dress and the outfit, and then you just take pictures as if you did the whole ceremony and everything. Right, but you just do it at a uh, at like a courthouse, sort of. Right, which is nice for academics on the cheap. You know, they're they're <laughs> working in academia; they're not getting a lot of money. Right. Who can afford a wedding? Yeah, honestly, in this economy. So, uh, it seems that you know Harumi's troubles are definitely more showing. Like when she goes to visit Ichi, she's sort of like dozing off, and Ichi even notes that like you don't look that good. Are you okay? So, you know, Harumi's, Harumi's having these issues and eventually just, like, boxes all of Maria's stuff and, like, drives it out to the dump and, like, hides it in a pile of boxes now that um, Harumi is looking to move in with her husband. And so we start having this issue where Maria is, like, actively invading Harumi's life by sort of, like, meddling in Harumi's contacts and, like, calling people. You know, things right. go straight to Harumi's phone instead of the second phone that Maria had set up specifically for the, like, call girl stuff. Right. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of going wild, uh, and it's, it's really affecting Harumi. You know, they, they both wish clearly to have separate lives now that Maria's back in full force. Maria won't let up on what she's doing to sort of, like, hurt Harumi. And it's just getting to this whole huge point with this just completely extreme episode where, like, it seems like Harumi and Maria are fighting each other, but it's just this huge kind of, like, 
episode of her having this this identity crisis mm-hmm. and which ultimately leads to her kind of stumbling out kind of like half dressed as Maria and just whacked by a little slugger uh which leads to a um a, a shot of the the answering machine at the phone just saying that all the messages have been deleted uh so um we now have a connection in the crimes between Ichi and Harumi right so you know um Mitsuhiro the other detective sort of notes that you know this, these are getting further away from Sukiko cuz Sukiko hadn't made contact with either of these characters right and he also notes that it seems like everyone has looked really relieved after their attacks. Like, everyone seems kind of happy that Little Slugger has attacked them. Well, except for Ushi. Except for Ushi, but it seems like for the most part, they're... Mm-hmm. And at the end, we sort of pan out and we see Harumi living a, a normal life with her husband. Sort of like, everything seems calm. You know, like a like a like a good average home life, and they they are watching the news, and an arrest has been made on Lil Slugger. Uh, meanwhile, we see Sukiko back in her apartment, who has fully healed now, and talking to Moromi, uh, she notes that it's good news that Lil Slugger got arrested because now there's undeniable proof that Lil Slugger, you know, is real. Like no one ever has to question this again, right? Does uh, Harumi's husband even get a name? No, I. as far as I know, Harumi's husband doesn't get a name. He's that boring. <laughs> like, he's that inconsequential. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's there for the- he's, he's there for Harumi's conflict, but as a character, he's not there <laughs> basically at all. It's- it's- yeah, but, um, so, we- we go a little bit back in time- because the the arrest on Little Slugger has not happened in episode four. Right. In episode four, a man's path it follows how they capture Little Slugger. Right. It starts off with um one of uh Harumi's clients. What? Yeah, I think Maria's talking- like main squeeze, I guess. Right. Um uh he's a police officer. He's one of those like, you know those Japanese cops that just sort of, like, sit in that tiny building? He's one yeah. of those. His name is Masami Hirokawa. Right. And um, he's talking to Detective uh, Kiichi uh, Ikari, and um, it seems like they have a bit of a rapport. They've probably known each other for a long time since they've been on the, fourth, the force for a while together. Um, they talk about how... Um, uh, Masami's building a house for him, his wife, and his seventeen-year-old uh, daughter. But yeah, he's he's he finally got enough money to get his house built. You know, this is sort of yeah. been his dream is always to build a house. Mm-hmm. And and he got it by um, you know keeping his nose clean, doing the right thing, working for the yakuza, um, taking bribe money. Yeah, it seems like he's sort of like giving info to the yakuza. So that they don't get captured when they're doing some kind of prostitution ring. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, you know, as I'll, you pay me so that I don't tell the cops. And also, I don't know, find me a, find me a woman, you know, that I can see on the side. Right. And, uh, 
He's got a real daddy thing, because this is the same character from before with a real daddy thing. Mm-hmm. So, eventually, Yakuza comes a call in, and it's, um, it's one of the... What are they calling? I was playing Yakuza Zero, and I don't remember what the. <laughs> but like one of the one of the heads of the yeah, family. Yeah, one, one, one of the heads is uh, is getting married, and um, Masami. Wait, what? So, oh no, so it's uh, it's Makabe. Makabe. Okay. Is the is the head of the mafia? Right. Or the Yakuza. Uh, Makabe asked uh, Masami for um, what is it? Uh, two is million it? yen. Two million yen, which is like. To, um, like, what, 10,000, uh, 20,000? 20, $20,000. Um, yeah, and, um... As, like, a wedding present. Right, for a wedding present. Because, I mean, uh, he's gotten so much money from the Yakuza, surely he can give a little back. But right. he, he can't, because he's spent all his money building his dream house. So, um... So Makabe threatens to burn Masami's house down if he can't do it. And as soon as, like, Masami tries to, like, negotiate, he puts out a cigarette on Masami's forehead. It's really fucked up. Yeah. So he's given three days to make this two million yen. And um, this whole time, Masami is, like, just absolutely obsessed with, um, like, this manly sort of Fist of the North style, Fist of the North Star style manga with, like, a hero who says slightly cryptic things about being a man. Right, called A Man's Path. So right. that's the connection to the, yeah. Um, and so uh, Masami decides that the thing that a man must do is uh, rob little old ladies who just got their, <laughs> their money from Social Security. Right. Um, he, he dresses up in like a red tracksuit and puts like um, a pink ski mask on. It's very much what I'd wear uh, to work out. <laughs> Um, right. He's got like a little tiny bicycle that he just rides up and snatches the purses, and it's it's really wild because he's just like pumping himself up to steal from this granny, mm-hmm. and he he does it, and he 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 finally gets enough money for the wedding present. Oh, he gets half of it. Oh, he gets half. He's like, okay, I'll pay in installments. I just got one million yen. Give me some more time. And the boss then says that. Because the, the guy who's getting engaged, Honda, is in the hospital, he's going to need another million. So now it's back to two million. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where we see Masami sort of like reading through a man's path, like in the drugstore. And it feels like it's following his life, sort of the struggles of this main character. And he feels like he has to comply in sort of the same way. That This is, you know, a man's way of life. Mm-hmm. Right. And he keeps stealing from people. Like, eventually it even gets on the news that there's, like, a ski mask bandit stealing purses from just random people on the street. Right, like, uh, he starts actually breaking into people's houses and stuff, and, like, he- everything's gone topsy-turvy for him because he's had such a comfortable life up to this, sort of, like, kind of exploiting the Yakuza, and Mm -hmm. now he's so caught up in this that he can't stop because- everything would fall apart as soon as, like, he went against the Yakuza. Right. Eventually, the Yakuza ask for, like, a lot of money, and from- It just con- continues to rack up the debt. Like, as soon as he pays it off, it's like, we need more. Right. And I think they ask from, like, a specific person, or is it- I think it's a specific person, because he knows where, like, the safe is and stuff in their house. 
Right. And like, he's like, he, he thinks that he can't even do this, but the Yakuza give him like, I don't know, uh, some sort of drug that basically like hypes him up enough. I, yeah, I assume it's some kind of like illegal drug that's just supposed to sort of like loosen his inhibitions. Mm hmm. Because he starts getting so brave that he's breaking into occupied apartments and right. like threatening people to get their stuff. Yeah, like he, I think he like ties them up and holds them up at gunpoint. Um, and then like, uh, this old couple's daughter walks in and, and she's like, who are you? And he turns and he's like, call me daddy. And it's implied that he uh, definitely uh, raped this child. Uh, in in the midst of his yeah. like drug induced um drug induced uh like theft, it's it's real. He's clearly like gone past the point of no return, where he's just like so caught up in this this like theft and illegal activity that he's just lost all of his inhibition. But he still like pictures himself as like this heroic manly man who's got a, a shaved head and very good abs. Um, this money is the lady I am saving from these thugs who are just like a pair of old people that have been saving money for yeah, a while. And he's, and he's sort of like, he, he, he's, while he ha he's lost his inhibition, he keeps doing it. It's very much broken him. Like his resolve is just shot. Like he, mm -hmm. he almost keeps calling out for people right. to catch him. I think that the ending of this episode is actually the perfect um, reimagining of Jim Carrey's The Mask, because it's a guy <laughs> in a mask yelling, somebody stop me. Christ. I've been saving that joke for a while. Um, so, so after this case, he is stopped by Keiichi, um, like, in a park outside that apartment complex where he- Yeah, like, he, he's just laughing to himself. He's got a briefcase full of money. He's like- Still pretty high. Yeah, and Keiichi stops by, and they go to a bar together, and sort of, Keiichi's maybe a little suspicious of the whole situation with Masami, but, you know, there's nothing to go off of. So he's just kind of, he kind of takes the time to talk about his frustrations with the little slugger case. Mm-hmm. And they talk about the way thing, they talk about the way things used to be, right? Right, it's sort of like, Keiichi finds so much important in finding motives as part of a case, because that's how you catch someone. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't know if he can believe in the idea that there's just no motive in this, like, these are just random attacks. Uh, and Keiichi and Masami kind of come to this conclusion that it's like a generational thing, that the lack of a clear motive just causes them to act out and sort of like, sort of like a, a vie for attention. Right. And then... Once they leave, um, Misami is hit by Little Slugger. What? I mean, he's also, like, crying in the street because of the horrible things he's done. And then Little Slugger slams into him, and he falls over, and, uh... But what? <laughs> what's this? Misami gets up, and he's like, Hey, you little piece <laughs> of shit, get back here! And he catches Little Slugger. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of hilarious the way he's like, he starts like beating the shit out of this kid because the kid can't run away fast enough. And uh, <laughs> the, ultimately, Masami arrests Little Slugger, you know? He's kind of a hero. And he becomes like, yeah, he becomes a hero. I think um, his debt is fully paid off to the Yakuza yeah. at that point. So 
yeah, he's a hero. And I think it goes back to even where um, Cho was watching it on uh, TV with her husband. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so uh, Little Slugger has been arrested now. Mm-hmm. Oh, the twists and turns. <laughs> and episode five, uh, The Holy Warrior is the interrogation with Lil Slugger, also known as uh, Makoto Kozuka, who is a second year in junior high. Uh, I also have the first notes for this episode for me are how bizarre exclamation point. <laughs> I mean, this episode is definitely like the weirdest so far. It's also probably the goofy. Well, one of the goofiest episodes, I it's, think. It's very goofy. Um, So uh, Keiichi and... Mitsuhiro are are um, interrogating this kid, and he's he's a little bit like of a chunibyu. He's 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 doing this thing where like he's referring to himself as the Holy Warrior, and you know he's he's defeating this you know evil force. It's it's very um, Dragon Quest, a Dragon Quest adjacent. I think in fact the 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 name of the like big evil that he fights is a reference to. The, the main villain in the first Dragon Quest. Mm. But um, he, he stops, he ta- he's talking about, like, saving people, and he calls himself the Holy Warrior. And uh, Makoto has found this way to connect the video game The Holy Warrior to his real life. And so he believes that he's attacking people who were possessed by evil. And it's, it's this kind of fun sort of thing where the more he talks about this, he he starts to like create this world that the you know like the landscape changes and no longer are they in the interrogation room they're in sort of this fantasy world and you know he is donned in holy warrior gear and his bat is a sword and uh Keiichi just has like no patience for this at all but Manawa gets into it yeah Maniwa uh, Mitsuhiro Maniwa um is like He's got, like, the guidebook for the game to try to, like, connect to this kid. And he's like, oh, this is this, and this is this. And, like, you know, uh, Makoto, Little Slugger, is giving them these classes and sort of changing their gear. It's a very goofy and sort of, like, fun way of recounting these, like, uh, these, you know, civilian attacks. Mm -hmm. Also, it gets sort of weird because, like, it's very clear at one point that it's, like, Okay, these are not like the characters talking in the real world about this thing because they start acknowledging like the fantasy world that they are now a part of and it's it's right. it's sort of bizarre because it feels like it's kind of hard to tell not exactly what's real anymore but it just like feels like there's a but lot where of that blurring. line blurs. Yeah. Yeah. I think that this this plays with that idea of sort of the the reality versus fiction sort of thing in a fun way, mm-hmm. whereas everything else in the show treats it in a very oh, terrifying way. <laughs> this is just like a fun, goofy, like, they start to acknowledge this idea and like, you know, he's bringing in all of these different characters, like, there's been this old man in the hospital throughout all the different episodes who has been sort of hinting at each of the um, attacks, like, He's like this old man in previous episodes is like sitting in the the parking lot writing big math equations and the solution at the end is somehow related to the attacker like um I mean that the the one right, who's the attacked. victim yeah the victim sorry so like in the first one it's uh he writes 510 and that's the apartment 
uh, number of uh, Tsukiko Sagi. And in episode two with Ichi, his solution comes out to one, because, you know, Ichi. And, like, e- even in um, Harumi Chono's situation, he, like, he's, like, drawing out animals, and for her, he draws out this butterfly that's, you know, white on one side and black on the other, sort of this duality sort of thing. And he's referred to as the ancient master who's giving Little Slugger all of these... Um, these clues for who to attack next, like who's cast by evil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the time with Little Slugger, he's hoping to find an old woman who is the, the homeless woman from before who knew of the great evil. And they keep referring to this evil as something that isn't of this world, you know, something supernatural that's causing these, these people in real life to be cursed, and he's the one who has to save them. Which you can kind of buy into because of the fact that they're, you know, dealing with these crises in their life for the most part. Right. It sort of makes sense in a weird way. Yeah, like it works out in a way that's like, this kid clearly, you know, has some problems, but sure, you could see where this comes from. And Mitsuhiro continues to follow Little Slugger's metaphor and sort of like, plays along in a lot of ways. Like he's he's doing kind of the goofy language and everything, and he's you know, he's he's following along with the story, and Keiji's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Tell me the truth, you know, just like, let's not make this flowery, just tell me what the truth is. And it, it that's, that's kind of it, is just this, like, pseudo-recap episode about all the different attacks that happened. Right, so if you missed the first four episodes, you could catch up with this one and be very confused. Yeah, and so... It's sort of just like a recap of the events from this different perspective to sort of see what the what Makoto sees himself as when he is an assailant. And what's great is at the end, sort of like, he's going off to fight the big evil and just immediately he's like smushed <laughs> and just dies. And that's how he gets caught is like the idea that he fought against an enemy too strong and just destroyed him. Right. And he lost all his levels. Right. He... He forgot to save. So by the end, Keiji's just like fucking tired of this um, of this whole thing. And uh, Mitsuhiro more or less gets it. You know, Maniwa gets it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's that's that that's that episode is it's just sort of the interrogation and just like sort of more about sort of where um, the blending of reality and fiction goes, because this also plays into the idea that Oh, you know, video games cause violence, you know, it's causing these people to act out because they see a relationship between it and real life. Like, they they can't tell the difference between reality and fiction. Yeah. And that leads us into episode six, which is... Oh, boy. It's pretty dark. Um, It's called Fear of a Direct Hit. Um, So, this episode introduces us to one of... um, uh, One of the last characters that's shown in the intro... Um, wait, let me find her name. The the girl with the sun hat. Right. Um, Taiko. Taiko. Also, the intro is very good. I watched it every time I watched an episode. I- yeah, it's, it's so, so I guess rolling it back a little bit. So the intro is like really unsettling and in yeah. an interesting way because it's a very upbeat song, but all the lyrics are about sort of like natural disasters and mm-hmm. like, you know, kind of the mushroom cloud, like typhoon coming through. So it's death destruction. And all of and the all the uh visuals are just like sort of natural disasters happening in the background 
while all of these characters just laugh. Mm-hmm. Like all of the major characters. It's it's uh it's unsettling, but it's 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 a fun song and it's <laughs> it stays with you. Yeah. Um, I think it's like the perfect way to set up like what you're about to see for the episodes. <laughs> right, that it's sort of like uncomfortable and it's kind of strange. So um we start with this girl. What's her name again? Whoops. Taiko. Taiko. Well, because we start out with a typhoon. Oh, right. A typhoon coming into the city. Um, right. It seems like it's going to hit the mainland. So, you know, there's a lot of um, stuff going on with, uh, you know, people taking protection and sort of like going into bunkers. Right. And uh, Taiko is uh, on the phone with somebody who she seems very cross with. And um, then it flashes back, right? To her as a child. Yeah. And we find through the use of the voice that uh, she is the child of Masami, the, mm-hmm. the corrupt cop. Right. And she's she's a very affectionate child. She loves her daddy very much. She like... She talks about wanting to marry him as a kid. Right. She talks about wanting to marry him and how like... And she just... She doesn't even want to like move out of her parents' room and, like, into a nicer house. She's just happy being with them, and she just loves them and trusts them so much. And one day... But on the phone, she's, like, oh. acting hostile to whoever's on the other side of the line, sort of like, don't call, I don't want to talk to you, I'm sick of this, you right. know, that kind of thing. Kind of denies her home and, and wishes that it would disappear. Right. And in the meantime, there's also this uh, this good cop, bad cop thing going on with Keichi and uh, Maniwa because they're they're talking to the old homeless lady. Mm-hmm. Since uh, Makoto referred to her, and sort of she's popped up in a couple other cases, and she has um, Sukiko's bag from the attack, the one with all the the, the sketches and everything. Right, and I think. Um- so through this conversation, while it seems like this lady is more concerned with her um, granddaughter who sort of ran away from home and whether or not she's safe, she admits at some point to Keiichi and Maniwa that the um, that Tsukiko was alone on the night of the attack. Right. And eventually, uh, while this um, interview is happening and we get to that revelation, the old lady's tent house blows away from the typhoon and sort of you know they they can't have this conversation anymore because it's just everything's in shambles because of the storm um and so we're we're back in the flashback and um it's taiko taiko i was gonna say uh akita but i think that's a type of (laughs) banana taiko um it's her father's birthday. She's in high school, and she she like sort of blows off her friends who want to go to karaoke. But she's like, no, no, I got to do something special for my dad's birthday. So um, she has a picture, and she wants to make it her dad's uh, background on his computer. So she's on or his- like print out a birthday card, right? Um, but she's on her dad's computer, and she sees something. Um, I think it's either in like the recycling bin or um near it like it's on like the next computer. to the recycling bin right uh on the computer not in the real life but she right. she clicks it and it's pictures of her in various states of undress like clearly taken like within her room yeah and so she panics mm-hmm. and sort of like 
tears her room apart in a in a fit trying to figure out where the camera is mm-hmm. and it turns out it's it's behind her bookcase yeah and she just smashes it um i think she even tears it out of the wall yeah which now the fact that you know uh that masami has like a daddy thing gets mm, <laughs> even more apparent it's ugh. yeah it's like oh I guess this is why it's his dream home. Oof. <laughs> yeah. And so, in the middle of this, we also see um, Keiichi and Maniwa talking, and Keiichi's like, oh, my intuitions were correct, you know. Um, Lil Slugger is, and he refers to it as a shadow of a shadow, and that uh, Makoto was just a copycat attacker um, who, you know, who was caught attacking this guy, and clearly he's not the same given that there was this whole, you know, given that he didn't, you know, finish the job or whatever. Mm-hmm. So Keiichi brings Sukiko back in for questioning under the guise of uh, continuing to identify the attacker in sort of this lineup, because also uh, all the other attacked parties have been coming in and sort of identifying the one, you know, Makoto as Little Slugger. Right. And so we kind of move back and forth now between Keiichi sort of like pushing back against Tsukiko and trying to get uh, the truth out of her with Taiko sort of having this this breakdown on a bridge uh, mm-hmm. as the tsunami gets, or as the um, typhoon gets closer. Yeah, like she's about to like kill herself. She doesn't know what to do. Um, but she sees the old lady um, drowning in like the, just the, the river below her. It's just, the but, rain um, but is... envisions it as herself to start. She thinks that it's a it's it's just her yeah. in the in the water as well. Mm-hmm. But then she realizes it's the old lady, and the old lady gets pulled away with the water, which is <laughs> oh yeah. Um, and so she she like calls for help, and she's like she's like calling her dad, and just like I want to forget it. I want to forget everything. Yeah, I want to become nothing, I think is the phrase also used. Mm-hmm. And there's this parallel between Taiko and Sukiko right now is sort of their desires to forget and escape because, you know, Keiichi's pushing on Sukiko to admit, you know, that, that uh, she lied about this and she's uncomfortable and Taiko's uncomfortable with the knowledge that her dad's a disgusting pervert. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, uh, Taiko is attacked. Mm-hmm. By Little Slugger. And you see um, the dream home get crushed by, um, uh, like, debris from the storm. Like, uh, like a mudslide it, happens. Yeah. But at the same time, Asagi just, like, she's in the middle of questioning with the detective, and she, like, jerks to the side like she's just been hit with um, a baseball bat and falls right, like to the ground. She goes flying at the same time Taiko is hit. Like, Sukiko just, like, it's it's an it's amazing how much force seems to be behind this. Like it couldn't be faked. <laughs> yeah, is what you get from it. And so uh, the typhoon passes at the end, and um, we find Taiko in the uh, in the hospital, and her father's there to sort of make sure that she's okay. And when she wakes up, he sort of apologizes for everything he's done. And says that the house was destroyed, like you know, yeah, like what what you wanted happened. The the you know the house was destroyed, and Taiko turns to him and just asks, "Who are you?" 
And so her wish, I guess, came true. Mm-hmm. She forgot everything. Right. It's a it's a wild episode, not only in sort of like building off sort of the uncomfortable um like character moments with Masami from earlier, but also like, you know, showing kind of the 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 dangers of the whole thing and you know, building up these very these very desperate scenarios. Mm-hmm. And we find out that clearly Makoto isn't Little Slugger. Right, he's still in jail, so he can't be, like, the real Little Slugger if Mm -hmm. there even is such a thing as the real Little Slugger. Yeah, we, and so it's, it's wild, because this is, I think this is the the first time that's like, oh, like, episode five is like, weird that they wrapped up the story this quick, Mm -hmm. and episode six is like, uh, not yet. (laughs) Right, not so fast. Yeah, there's still a lot of stuff to Columbo's catch up like, with. uh, just uh one more thing. If <laughs> if you would uh, um uh, uh never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Get it. So then we have episode seven, uh Megahertz. And this is like getting hit by a bat, am I right? <laughs> Wolf <laughs> God damn it. So uh this is the sort of episode where some of the truth begins to emerge. And so, uh, Tsukiko is unconscious in her, uh, in the interrogation room, and the detectives have just discovered about the slugger's attack on Taiko. And then Tsukiko kind of, uh, wakes up and states that Lil Slugger was here. Lil, Lil Slugger was the one who attacked her in that room. Mm-hmm. And so, we kind of see sort of a pan across all of the um all of the victims of Lil Slugger and they all have very um uncomfortable smiles. Right. Like they're all they all seem way too happy with how things have turned out. Yeah, like they're not moving. They just have like this weird sort of smile upright position. It's Yeah. But uh it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's not their case anymore. Uh you know, they they mm-hmm. finish their part and it's time for the detectives to head out. You know, they're dealing with a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, as they head out, Mitsuhiro sort of has this kind of unsettling conversation with the old man that doesn't really go anywhere, but sort of like, it's still like the old man sort of like cryptic speech that he's been doing. And Mitsuhiro's the one just to, or Maniwa, I guess I should call him Maniwa. That is the, the name they use for him more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maniwa is there to experience it, but... um. They they go and they're they're still trying to get info out of Makoto, trying to get him to crack, since you know they they know that he's not the real attacker. They want to know the truth behind his you know situation and the whole thing. And meanwhile, we cut away throughout the episode to someone in an abandoned room, sort of like it seems like sending out like low frequency radio messages, sort of like this almost um, subliminal message sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we won't know about that for a while, but uh, Makoto ends up uh, under pressure admitting that he only attacked Ushiyama and Masami, and those are the ones who were sort of like different- Outliers. Yeah, outliers in the attacks, sort of like, you know, they didn't have the same situation, they didn't have the same sort of response to their attacks. And ultimately, uh, Maniwa ends up questioning the victims to see if there's a connection now back to Sukiko, because we're now back on- that idea now mm-hmm. that they haven't you know they haven't found it and uh maniwa comes to the conclusion that everyone 
who was properly attacked was dealing with some kind of problem or significant like psychological issue at the time, sort of like they felt cornered. Right. And while he finds that, you know, Keiichi is kind of, um, he's not convinced. He sort of, he points out that like the circumstances of all of the attacks are too specific to be coordinated. Like, how can you know when someone's on the brink? And then, uh, he starts getting really violent with Makoto in the interrogation to try and find the, the logic in this case that connects everything together. Right. He's like, he's pushing Makoto to an edge. And Makoto just kind of thought Little Slugger was cool and wanted <laughs> to follow along. Like, he was like, oh man, that guy's cool. He's just like hitting people. I want to do that. Yeah. To be fair, Little Slugger is very cool. Right. And we start to see Maniwa sort of like, uh, it seems like he's cracking under the pressure to find his own answers since Keiichi doesn't believe him. He's sort of like, he's starting to have dreams of- Yeah, like weird hallucinations. Of like the old man and he hears Makoto sort of like asking him to be take him there. Like he, everything's coming back to this old man. And he's starting to see like, you know, he's starting to see these things as like a vision. And he's trying to, trying to make these claims to Keiichi who just tells him to take a vacation. Since it seems like the case is really getting to him and he needs some time off. And as Maniwa goes to, to kind of drive home, he realizes that the, the next logical case, if he's correct, mm-hmm. the next logical step in, um, the little slugger attacks is Makoto, who's been cornered and sort of like, you know, he's, he's been, he's been cracked. He's been under this all kinds of pressure. So he calls, um, Keiichi up and tells them that they have to go to the precinct. You know, against everything else, they have to get there now, and if it's wrong, you know, Maniwa will take the blame for it. Mm-hmm. But he goes in, he's going into the precinct with his gun at the ready, and they run into Little Slugger. And Little Slugger has blood on his bat this time, and he sort of smiles right before disappearing through a wall. And they look into the, the cell, and the door is opened, and Makoto's dead. Yeah. This is um, the first casualty of the the show. Yeah, this is the first death that's happened, and it happened because of the slugger. And none of the other attacks have been like this before, so it's uh, it's unsettling. But um, ultimately, because this person died in police care, a lot of the people from that division have to resign due to this negligence, which includes uh, Keiichi and Maniwa. And Maniwa sort of has this moment where he's feeling cornered as he sort of, you know, he's down in the dumps after his, uh, after his firing. And he thinks he's attacked, but it's a, it's a dream again. He's sort of, he's continuing to have hallucinations related to this case. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that throughout this episode, the man who's been on the radio is in fact Maniwa, who seems to have gone mad or, you know, has kind of lost his cool trying to relay all of this info that he's gathered about the whole thing, you know, that you're, that you can't be cornered or he's going to attack you. Like he's always there. These sort of like, you know, crazy things through, through his radio signals. And that's where the episode ends and sort of where the main plot sort of like takes a sideline for a bit. Yeah. Like it's it's not to say that these are filler episodes coming up, but the next three episodes are sort of like 
they they pull back even further from sort of the connection to this little slugger case, whereas like we've had a bunch of kind of stories based around characters that are going to be directly related. We're going to start seeing more like ancillary stories that sort of build up little slugger as as like a as like a public nuisance or as like a force to be reckoned right. with. Right. And the first one is uh I guess it's a funny episode. Yeah, this it's, is uh, it's sort of happy family planning. <laughs> right. It's um it's a bit of a, a goofy character. We start off with uh three new characters. We ha- we haven't seen them before. Fuyabachi, who is um an old man, uh Kamome, uh who is a little girl, like probably like seven or eight or so very young yeah yeah and then zebra who's a man like probably in his um mid-20s or so Um, maybe early 30s and they they seem to be big maromi fans yeah yeah they've all got maromi backpacks and it shows them kind of like talking on like a like an irc channel uh trying to meet up yeah and so they they meet up um and Fuyabachi and uh, Zebra are there together, and they see uh, Kamome, and they start, they realize, oh, she's a little girl, and they start running from her, which is, which is really weird, like, she, she knows that they're from, um, the, the form, because they're wearing the backpack, and Yeah, he's like, oh, so you're Fuyabachi and you're Zebra, and Fuyabachi is just, like, super uncomfortable with the idea that their internet friend is such a young girl, and so they, they sort of run away from uh from Kamome and try to like you know keep a distance from her so that she'll eventually like give up. Mm-hmm. So um they they find themselves in an abandoned build building and um they're setting up for what I can only assume is a final meeting because they start getting out stuff to kill themselves. Right, it's like a, it's a it's a weird group suicide thing. It turns out that IRC is like a group suicide pact uh like channel. Yeah, just like hey, suicide tips, like stuff like that. It's Yeah, and, and so like they start just like ca- like eating a ton of pills. Right. Um Fiobachi actually takes like one pill before they even start the whole thing. Right, which seems like maybe like a heart medicine thing or something that's actually for his health right, right before he commits suicide. So. Yeah, it seems like it's his last one, so maybe he knows that he's got something going on. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But yeah, uh, they start taking a lot of pills. They start like inhaling like smoke or like toxic fumes. Um, and then <laughs> they're uh, doing a lot. Yeah, they're like trying to speed up this process. <laughs> They even like, and then they're ready to fall asleep. You know, kind of <laughs> let the let the drugs take in and let them die. And uh, oops, uh, Kamome found them. <laughs> yes, and she's ready to die. Like she she has made it very clear that she is super ready to die. Right. She is, she does not want to be a part of this mortal coil any longer. Um, but at, basically, as soon as she finds them. Um, the building starts getting busted into by construction workers. Yeah, like like a, like a crane comes in and just knocks a bunch of shit above them, and yeah. they're kicked out. Yeah. Uh, so they're on the street, and they're like, well, how are we going to commit suicide now? Our place is <laughs> getting demolished. Uh, and they come up with the idea, uh, get hit by a train. We'll just jump in front of the train. And so they- but Fuyabachi plans to like 
throw Komome back right before they jump so that right. she's still not dead. Like, Fuyabachi's still super against this child. Yeah, they, Fuyabachi, Zebra do not want Komome to die. She's just a little girl. She's just a little girl. Right. So they've all lined up to to jump in front of this train, and right. they're talking about sort of like the logistics of it, like how fast the train's going, what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Holding hands, and right before the train comes, some other guy just runs and jumps <laughs> in front of the train. Yeah, and so they're like, and so th- suddenly they're, they're like so shocked that they didn't jump. Yeah. And so, well, we they, missed our chance this like, time. They see it, and they're like, ah, oh, that's not how I want to go. Yeah, they're like, oh, that's not clean. Like, they no. want a clean way to die. Yeah. And Fuyabachi takes Komoe, and they they leave, and Zebra's, like, still shocked and staying behind, and he sees the guy get up, like, covered in blood, just, like, rubbing his head, and like, ugh, I'd, I didn't expect that to hurt so much. Right, so it's like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> but I guess, you know, he, he walks away. Yeah. Um, and so they actually just take a train- um yeah like Komome like they start talking about whether or not Komome has any regrets since she's so young and Komome's big regret is that she hasn't gone on like a long train ride uh Mm -hmm. just to enjoy it and so they all just decide to go up to the mountains yeah and um they take a train to the mountains they're having a good time they're setting up ropes and nooses and stuff it turns out they're doing a group hanging (laughs) yeah um but um Fuyobachi gets Zebra to like cut uh Kamome's rope a little bit so that when she tries to hang herself it'll just break and she'll just be next to two dead men um in the middle right. of the forest you know <laughs> cool <laughs> um but th- the issue is when it comes down to it they're all standing on like rocks so they can kind of kick it away once they st- you know want, uh, and start choking mm-hmm. but um they they start to have this like hesitance, maybe like a, a small crisis because they they haven't decided who's gonna give the signal to jump. <laughs> like none of them decided. Oh, who's gonna decide when we all commit suicide? And uh, they start losing their footing. <laughs> yeah, Kamome just starts yelling, "Jump, jump, jump!" and jumping up and down, and it actually causes the tree branch to break. Um, right. And her rope breaks, and um, Zebra and Fuyabachi are just chased down the mountain by this big branch. Um, they just, like, completely, like, just bowled over. Um, right, they Komome's run into rope the breaks, so she's still there. Yeah. But the other two have gone down with this. Yeah. And so, like, they take they take a tumble, but they're still ticking. Um, and they're still, like, in the noose, so they're like, oh, finally, we can kill ourselves on our own. <laughs> But they also feel bad because, like, oh, you know, Komome is still going to be there. We can't do that. Yeah, like, she's on our like, conscience. she's like climbing down the hill. She's like so sad. She's like, hey, you guys. Yeah, and she 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 admits that she just doesn't want to be alone. Like that's that's the real kicker of the whole thing. She wants to go out with others. I guess probably just because of like a really like disjointed family life. Mm-hmm. And so um, Fuyabachi decides that, like, hey, if we're gonna kill ourselves. We might as well get our bodies all clean, like be fit, uh, like a body and mind. So, hey, let's go to a hot spring. Like they go, they check into a, like a little hotel sort of thing. Yeah, like an outdoor bath, and they all kind of you know soak. They enjoy it, mm-hmm. and they start talking about their IRC again, and they talk about um, this guy online Fox, who's got 
who's like basically been like the one to like give them all the suicide tips <laughs> all these cool tips yeah. on how to die yeah, yeah, like, all- yeah and, and it uh it turns out like fox uh, wanted to do something sensational before he <laughs> died and he ended up dying before these other three and actually it turns out fox was uh was makoto yeah which is wild, because that's also another child using a suicide IRC. Mm-hmm. And they all just go like, wow, must be nice being dead. Yeah, they're like super into it. And and it also seems like they've they've been tuning in somehow to these radio transmissions from Maniwa and all this information about Little Slugger, about sort of like, you know, how yeah, he, goes, he comes for cornered people and stuff like that. Right. They, tr- they try to put themselves into a corner. And they're just so jealous of this dead guy. Yeah. They just want to be dead so bad. And then, like, oh, what's this? Somebody else in the the bath is, like, they have a, um, they get cornered and they get bonked by a little slugger. And so- Little slugger is just killing so many people in this hotel. Yeah, like, they must have, like, terrible ratings on Yelp, um, like- (laughs) I got Gordon Ramsay tried star. to save it, but, like, no, <laughs> these people are just, like, pushed to their brink by, like, the terrible linen or something. Like, something. Welcome to the be- real hotel hell. Yeah. And so, Fuyabachi, Kamome, <laughs> and Zebra just start chasing after Little Slugger. Who- <laughs> Please kill me, Little Slugger. Yeah. He, like, it, like, we get a lot of emotion from Little Slugger in this scene, which is, yeah. like, something you don't see. Right, Little Slugger has been smiling the whole time and attacking, but, like, he gets creeped out by these characters. <laughs> and they end up chasing him away because yeah, he's, like, they're too eager to die. Like, he is not ready for people to just be like, oh, kill me, Little Slugger, oh. Uh, but, yeah, he runs away. Um, and I think it's, like, the next day and they are, like about to get back on the train or something. They're kind of like sitting at like a 7-Eleven or something, kind of lamenting the fact that they couldn't die. <laughs> right. And, um, Fuyabachi, like, checks his pills, and he realizes that he he took his pill, like, the day before, but when he checks his pills, he's still got one more pill left. And then he starts sort of, like, freaking out and, like, a very, like, um dramatic way he like looks at around at like all these like ravens surrounding Yeah, we get them. this cool like sort of first person perspective for the camera and we see that as he's sort of panicking looking around n- none of the three of them have shadows and nothing really comes out of that like at the end it's just like you know zebra is like hey how should we die then and he just says that they should die by delusion Mm-hmm. They go back on the train ride. Right. And then you see them together walking down the street, just whistling all together. And they're walking past some tourists and they like photobomb a picture they're taking. And the tourists are like, oh, oh, let me see the picture. Let me see the picture. And they just scream <laughs> as the three of them yeah. walk away whistling. And uh, we find out that they're already dead. And in fact, um, if you look back on the episode, they've been dead since the the crane scene. Yeah. That they haven't had shadows. Mm-hmm. Like, after the scene where, like, the scene where they're first, like, evicted from the building, that's 
like the first scene where you see they don't have shadows. Yeah, and that's why they see the guy after the train, because they're dead, so they see ghosts. Mm -hmm. But, um, so there's a thing in Japanese mythology where, like, you start, when you're a ghost, you start every day um, the same as the day you died. So that's why Fuyabachi still has one pill left in his his container, which um, is not something I knew till I was looking up, hey, were these guys dead on Wikipedia? (laughs) So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting thing. I didn't know about that either. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, cool, but <laughs> hey, check out this cool dead people tip. <laughs> uh, and then we get uh, another sort of like weird sort of side story. This is uh, episode nine, etc. And we sort of see the way that so like the last one is sort of like, this is what Tokyo looks like in the wake of the little slugger attacks. And now we get sort of like the 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 social effect of mm-hmm. little slugger. And this is an interesting episode, I think, because like I feel like um like I hadn't seen anything about Paranoia Agent before we started doing this, uh, but mm-hmm. I actually had seen a scene from this episode, and I think that like some really like interesting imagery actually comes from this episode which is Mm -hmm. just sort of like i don't know i just think that that's interesting which is why i said that word so many times right it's it's uh it's it's certainly an episode like uh (laughs) yeah well because out of all the episodes this is one it's one of them yeah the this this episode is entirely focused around this group of middle-aged women who are gossiping over little slugger and this is again another thing where sort of like we can't exactly tell where the line between fiction and reality exists because all of these women are sort of like, they all do the same structure where it's like, have you heard this about little slugger? You won't tell anyone, right? Like they're sort of like building up this whole like mystique of like gossip about this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, the first one, they talk about this local boy who's having this, who had this mental breakdown over failing his entrance exams over and over. And, He's sort of like he's overstudying. He's he's stressed, and at some point he like sneezes, and a, a mathematical equation literally falls from his sneeze and lands on the ground. Yeah, with like a clunk. It's disturbing. Yeah. And so he goes to the practice exam, and he's sneezing out another and another and another. Like he seems to have gotten a cold, and he's just like spewing um, his his knowledge out very literally. And so he he has like this breakdown in the bathroom where he's just like vomiting up uh, vomiting up all of these math equations as like bile, right? And trying to shove them back into his mouth, which is yeah, it's really gross. He's like trying to eat his own vomit basically. And while he's having this breakdown, little slugger gets him, and that's the whole story, right? Oh, and he died also. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, that's how they end that. But so sort of as it's it's going around in this circular thing where. Uh, each of them tells a story, and this this next one's sort of about like this rude mother-in-law trying to teach her uh, her daughter-in-law etiquette, and eventually they sort of lash out at each other, and little slugger uh, smacks into uh, into the old lady. It kind of just continues to go back and forth, and finally they run into um, the kind of the new member of their group, sort of the the new wife who's in this gossip group, mm-hmm. and she spins this sort of ridiculous story of. A lady who sort of goes through uh, in vitro fertilization because they they can't have sex the normal way, mm-hmm. or they can't have children the normal way. Yeah, I assume they can still have sex the normal way. Uh, 
Bad news, though, for her pregnancy, the nurses extremely fucked up and gave her someone else's egg and also not the father's sperm. <laughs> or not the uh, the husband's sperm. So the doctor, to avoid acknowledgement of the error, asks the nurses to burn the evidence. And he's like, he has to freak out every time that she shows up so that he's like, oh, yeah, this is ex- Just, uh, such a normal baby. What a normal baby that's yours. This is extremely your baby. Look at it. There it is. Your baby. And um, and eventually uh, the, the lady complains about a violent reaction from the child, like, kicking. And it turns out that it's a little swugger in the womb. <laughs> and it pulls out and all, all the other women are just like, uh, that's stupid. <laughs> like, that's impossible. How did that happen? And a uh, little slugger already exists. So how is that real? And... Uh, so the, all of them are like, oh, wait, you, this new lady, you're the, you're the wife of a script writer, right? So you must just be spinning a tall tale. And they all laugh about how she isn't very good at making up stories. And it kind of continues from there where, like, it, it starts to get more absurd as they tell these stories, um, what Lil Slugger can do. And, like, the, the, the script writer's wife continues to point out, like, hey, wait a minute, but your story doesn't make sense either. That doesn't have anything to do with it. And they all turn on her, like, uh, actually, it's very real. Sort of like this weird mob mentality of, like, you know, to right. them, it doesn't matter if it's alienate real or not. the that, new guy. Yeah, alienate the new person. And so there's, like, this whole thing about the Xboxer, like, an Xboxer who gets tempted by unhealthy food and then gets killed for no reason. Mm-hmm. Uh there's one about like a uh, uh, you know uh, a rookie pitcher in a real baseball game that where little sluggers TV. at the plate. Yeah, and th- it was on TV. We all saw it. You didn't see it. Well, weird. And you know the wife of the scriptwriter tries another story and um, you know tells the story about a man on a deserted island who just gets slammed. Everyone calls her out on it again, <laughs> and so like she keeps coming up with these new. Um, stories to try to fit in with this new group, but none of them work. And we get like, oh, Little Slugger works for the Yakuza, and Little Slugger kills the space team, which sounds like, <laughs> which the like Little Slugger kills the space team, and Little Slugger works for the Yakuza sounds like the weirdest sort of like children's story setup. <laughs> like just the like the way the titles work, like oh, Harry Potter visits the dragon kind of thing. It, it kind of almost, um, it's almost like later like horror movie sequels where they just have to get more and more ridiculous. Right. Little Slugger X. Oh my god, he goes to space. (laughs) Freddy versus Little Slugger. (laughs) And so she's really down in the dumps walking home because, you know, she wasn't able to fit in with this new group of friends. And when she gets home, she finds that her husband, the scriptwriter, has been attacked by Little Slugger and is bleeding on the floor. And instead of, like, calling 911, which he asks for, he's constantly like, I, you know, I, I need help. Uh, call an ambulance. She's like, uh, tell me how this happened. I need to have a story to tell <laughs> to the to the women in the group. And uh, he ends up passing out. <laughs> she like shakes him, trying to be like, I need the story. Yeah, um, this is probably my least favorite episode of the series. I just yeah, it's it's real plotting in a way. Like it just. Uh- like, I, I think it's good to, like, establish that, like, oh, people are really, like, talking about Little Slugger, and, like, maybe even this, like, gossip about him is making him stronger in a certain way. And there's, like, certain, like, really striking visuals, like, the math, like, literally flying out of a teen's head, but it just doesn't feel like it... 
I don't feel like it really connects that well back to the rest like, of I the series. Like, I feel like there maybe should have been fewer stories, almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, like, it, it gets, a, it, it starts getting, like, real long-winded. Um, because they start, like, there's a whole one that's just, like, a romance story mm-hmm. that just ends with Little Slugger being there and killing them both. Like, it, it, it starts getting a little ridiculous. Like, I think they could have cut down the stories by, like, half. Mm-hmm. Like, it starts to feel like an R.L. Stein anthology at a certain point. Right. right. It's It's a bunch of people, like, basically pitching Goosebumps stories, <laughs> but about Little Slugger. Right. So, much more terrifying. <laughs> right. It's the scariest. But, um, yeah, so then we get sort of our, um, I guess the final filler episode or sort of like, you know, influence episode. This is episode 10, Mellow Maromi. Right. But this one almost feels like a little bit of a return to form, even though it's like a, a series of new characters. Yeah, and it ends up playing into the plot more than the other ones. So it's about uh, an anime team um, making the new Maromi TV show. And it starts off with like, oh god, I didn't write down the character's name for... This episode. The, a lot of the people in the studio have names, and I can't keep them all on track, but the ones we want to focus on in particular are um, Naoyuki Saruta, mm-hmm. who is the, like, the production manager, and the, the head of the whole project, who, uh, Oda Nobunaga. <laughs> Oops. But yeah, so it, kinda, it opens up in a way where you're like, I don't know what the fuck's going on, because... The the opening is just um the like the first couple minutes uh or like the first minute of the Maromi anime. Right. And it's like a, a very mellow dog, like hanging out with a baseball kid, like, hey, you should take a break. Yeah, and, and as you go through it, it sort of like goes back, it's like now it's a production cell, now it's like storyboards and everything. And it turns out they're in a, a studio recording the voiceover for Mellow Maromi, the anime. Mm-hmm. And then one thing I really like about this episode is that every time like you're introduced to a new character, Maromi actually comes in and is like, this person does this on the anime. They make the art for the backgrounds. They um, mix the yeah. audio. And it's like really weird. And it's sort of like something you would see in like a kid's show where it's like, Oh, here's how the sausage gets made with this TV show. It's, it's right, but and it also gets like a little disturbing because it's like, and if this person messes up, then it goes to someone else. You know, like <laughs> it it starts to turn a little dark almost. Right. So, uh, so we're having this anime has some production issues, and they talk about it, um, it, you know, in the studio while they're doing voiceover. Like, you know, we're not going to be able to get this done in time. You know, the, a lot of fresh talents on this show. It seems like, you know, overall, it's kind of like a newbie sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But everyone loves Maromi. Right. The, the mascot. And so they need to do this. Perhaps the script writer is dead. Oh. Oh, yeah. They uh, they show in um, <laughs> they, they show that the writer gets paralyzed uh, for <laughs> during the production of the show. And it's like, oh, uh, I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure that that's the script writer from episode nine who gets attacked. Yeah. So in interspersed in sort of like the look at the production of this anime, we also get scenes of the production manager driving 
on the way to deliver um, the episode one tapes to the studio. Right. And so it's like, so there's only 30 minutes to go before it airs, which is bad. Rough start. (laughs) Right. And uh, he keeps falling asleep on the road. And sort of every time his eyes close, we see a new scene from the anime production that right. uh that, that that's going like on weeks ago or so yeah or even days ago in certain circumstances right but basically ago, but he he is not very good at his job uh because he he really just keeps mucking up everybody's work it seems like yeah i've seen people do readings of this character as sort of like a realistic depiction of sort of like the the moe clumsy character and how <laughs> Uh, this this person in real life would be the most annoying nuisance in the world. Oh my god, that's a that's a very fun reading of this because like he trips over like a computer cable for someone who's doing digital art and it loses all the work and he uh, gets like a freshly painted uh, background. And he's like, don't worry, nothing's gonna happen to this, and he folds it up and puts it in his pocket. And a- as he starts to ruin their lives, like. And just the stress of making this anime starts to, like, one by one, pick off the people making the anime Little Slugger gets to them. They're all said, like, they're Little Slugger attacks. Right. Right. They're all pushed into the corner through stress. Um, Right. And sort of the whole thing about his is sort of, like, every time that he's, um, he's cornered, he's like, actually, this is someone else's problem. Like, oh, it's your problem for having the cable out where I could trip over it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And like to take out his, uh, take out his anger. He's like attacking the keyframes and stuff for the anime. Like he is actively sabotaging it through his clumsiness. Right. He like, even like he knocks the power out in the building by like being just, oh my God. He's, he's the worst. He's the worst. He's the worst. Yeah, and, like, it cuts back to him, like, driving, and he's like, you know, uh, other people have a problem. I don't make mistakes. You know, the people who got attacked by Little Slugger are maggots. Mm-hmm. And he sees Little Slugger in his rearview mirror and sort of, like, panics and sort of drives faster and seems to disappear. Yeah. But then we also see, like, you know, oh, he misses a deadline for something and he pushes the, you know, blames on others. Right. And he... He keeps seeing Little Slugger, and um, he keeps, like, like uh, Nobunaga, his boss, is just, like, really just berating him, like, just, like, letting him have it, like, pulling his ears, just, like, calling him, like, a dumb monkey, I think. Um, right, like, he, like, he uh, falls asleep during the job and stuff, and, and, like, there's one point where... You know, he he shows up to like uh like uh the person who kind of like goes over all of the cuts of the anime to make sure they're okay. He's like, we need these by the end of today. And it's like, uh, nobody told me about this, and we've been at this for months now. And so, you know, again, he's in trouble. Mm-hmm. He goes over to someone's house to pick up the work, <laughs> and they are literally lying there dead. And he just picks up this stuff and's like, right. oh, great work. Yeah, and he blames his boss for not noticing that she was dead. Like, oh, it's all his fault that I couldn't tell us a dead. I'm not dumb enough that I don't know someone dead. It looked like she was sleeping. What the the best part about it all, though, is that they still introduce this dead person. <laughs> like, this person is lying in a puddle of blood on their desk, and Maromi comes in and is like, "This is the you know, this is the cleanup artist or whatever." 
So, like, eventually, through all these flashbacks, um, we finally get to one of the last flashbacks where, like, finally, the the first episode of the Maromi is finished, and all he has to do is is drive it to um, the station to get it filmed. The tape is found in a dead man's hand on there, um, and everyone else in the in the in the team is dead except for Oda Nobunaga and Naoyuki. So, and so like Oda grabs it and he's like, "I'm gonna deliver this, and we'll finally be done." And um, Sayuki just he bats him with um the, the little yeah. slugger bat. He has his own gold bat that's not bent. And just, like, slams it in the back of uh, Oda's head. And he, like, takes his phone. He's like, oh, I'll deliver it all right, kind of thing. <laughs> and so you get the idea that maybe he's the one who's been killing all these people and letting Little Slugger take the blame for it. Like, every yeah. time someone slights him in the, in, the, in the studio, he just kills them. Right. I actually hadn't read it that way. But you know what? That makes a lot of sense. I wasn't sure. I really wasn't sure. And so, uh, by the end of this, Little Slugger's against him, and sort of, like, he's having a panic attack on the road. He's, like, running into the wall on this road as he drives there. And we we see him sort of, like, he thinks he's driven away from Little Slugger, but Little Slugger's in the back seat and just <laughs> smacks him. Right. And that it's, we see um, the people at the station, like, about to broadcast the show, and they run outside. There's a terrible car wreck, and they just grab the videotape from Right, there's his a car hands. wreck, and the production manager is lying there dead on the steps, and the, the anime is in his hands, and they just take it from, like, oh, thank god the tape's okay. We gotta get the Moromi show out. So yeah, this episode feels like a pretty, um, a pretty, uh, scathing critique of the anime industry. <laughs> Maybe just a bit. And so, like, uh, it comes back to sort of the, the, the take a rest thing coming from, uh, Maromi in the, the, the anime that they're making. And I guess the production manager was finally able to just relax and take a rest. Take a rest. Take a rest. Do you think, um, the director, oh, I forgot his name. Oda Nobunaga. Um, no, no, no. Like, of the actual anime. Oh, 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 it's Satoshi Kon. Uh, it's the Satoshi Kon. Um, do you think he was told, oh, no, you have to have 13 episodes, not 12. And he was like, oh, I hate this anime industry. Oh, I'll give you a 13th episode. I'll kill you in the, in the anime. I do wonder if any of them are based on like real people he knew. But anyways, this, it, that's a wild sort of meta episode that kind of shows how desperate everyone is for Maromi content. Like, like Maromi's just the super chill, sort of like, it's almost um, like a, a parody or sort of a play on the the relaxing character sort of trope in Japanese culture, the, I think it's Yashi Kiara? Like, um, like Tare Panda, or one of those where it's sort of like, it's a character who just sort of like, lays around and doesn't have any problems. Like that, uh, the the hippo? thing um what uh you might be thinking of the same thing um but uh, yeah so it's it's sort of like based on that and it seems like everyone really needs maromi content right now with little slugger up in his uh his kill game right i mean even before that maromi was still po very popular right 
but it seems like it's almost a fervor now. Yeah. And then we uh, we end up in episode 11. No entry. And this is sort of where the, the lines blur even further in what the, the show considers reality versus fiction. And we open up on this older woman who is turning down a life-saving operation at a hospital and picking up some some meds. And it turns out that this woman is uh, Keiichi's uh, wife. And so she's going through her issues, and meanwhile we sort of see everyone else um, it, it kind of, you know, she, she walks, she's walking through the city and we see Tsukiko on the TV getting interviewed about the Moromi anime. Mm-hmm. And Tsukiko doesn't seem really enthused, but hopes that it inspires peace. You know, kind of very, like, almost, like, market, you know, kind of, like, marketed towards uh, this interview. Like, I don't really care, but these are the things I should say. Right. And they talk about how um, uh, Moromi is based on Tsukiko's childhood dog and stuff like that, and they're going through old sketches. And it seems like uh, Little Slugger rumors are continuing to spread she kind of passes by some women talking about it, and like it looks like he's like kind of a big buff man now. Yeah, he is large and in charge of this entire city. He is no longer little. Right, they decide he's huge and has big muscles. Like he's like eight <laughs> feet tall now, and just and he's just like oh, he's meaty. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the the woman walks in and walks into her house. And Little Slugger is there, and she talks about having called Little Slugger to her house because she had thought of dying, and sort of like she felt like she had nowhere, what nothing she could do, and realized her mistake just in time to not get attacked by Little Slugger because she couldn't dare betray her husband. And that's this is where we learn that uh, this is Keiji's wife, Misai. And so, um,. Misai sorts of starts to sort of talk to Little Slugger about sort of Keiichi's life. Keiichi is now working um, several jobs with a construction company as a, as like a security guard, and so he's running between these three different jobs at the same time as this conversation goes. And Misai talks about how Little Slugger's sense of salvation is flawed, and kind of invites him in to talk about this whole thing, and. She talks about how she was born with a weak constitution, and that just throughout her whole life she's told that she wouldn't live long, and she didn't feel comfortable making any permanent state in life, like, you know, getting married or anything, but she found Keiichi, and Keiichi loved her for who she was and didn't need any changes, and it it totally changed the way she looked at life. Uh, unfortunately, at the same time, while she's talking about this, it skips back to a Keiichi on the job. As he sort of like kind of ogles the butt of a woman walking by. Hey, 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 hey! Nobody's perfect, right? It's just, it's just so it's <laughs> like that doesn't happen throughout the rest of the episode. But that particular sort of like juxtaposition is kind of funny because he's just got a really good expression on his face too. Mm, yeah, it, it's it's very good. <laughs> um, and Kaiji's actually working with uh, somebody he knows at the yeah, construction Keiichi, site. Kaiji ends up meeting. Um, uh, I don't remember if he's given a name, but just, like, uh, another person that he had <laughs> originally caught, like a thief. So, Masai kind of talks about how um, 
it, you know, he, she's constantly been sort of a burden or felt like a burden to her husband because she can't have children due to her weak constitution. And, you know, even, even though he continues to accept her after all this, she still feels kind of like she continues to curse herself for it. You know, he's working long hours now to be able to support both of them. And she had always worried that he was using work to avoid her and, you know, that she's a, a burden. And as this happens, Lil Slugger keeps growing bigger and bigger. Sort of like under the influence of sort of this, this, uh, the, this, the self-loathing her, her, that yeah, Masai has. Her doubt and self-loathing like gives power to Little Slugger. Right. So Keiichi is again continuing to run through and it, Inukai is the name of the man who he captured. Mm. And so they start, they almost have like a weird camaraderie. <laughs> right. They miss the way things used to be, like between the cops and yeah, the like robbers. Yeah, they're talking about how it was old, you know, kind of old fashioned detectives and old fashioned thieves. With a burlap sack. Right. Inukai talks about how he's too old school to become a, a thief now that, you know, like lockpicking and everything has changed. And Keiichi's like, uh, I'm kind of an old school detective too. I, I don't know if I fit on the force. But meanwhile, uh, Misai continues to talk about her work as a wife and how even though she, she can't do so much, she always does her best to make her husband happy after, you know, his hard days at work. And like Lil Slugger keeps having these ups and downs where he gets really excited and almost ready to attack Keiji's wife, uh, when she says something condescending. And as soon as she changes it to something positive, he like flips out and he starts just smashing shit through her house. Mm hmm. And it'll just like start. Like, practice batting right above her head. Right, and like, the, just smashing her paper doors and her TV and her <laughs> table. It's, it's awful. She needs that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, Kichi and Inakai are kind of getting along as they talk, and they go out drinking together for a bit after work. Uh, yeah, and so they, you know, uh, Keiichi talks about how Little Slugger is sort of an insult to Keiichi's belief in sort of a motive and sort of, you know, these, these uh, other ideals that he has. And this is where he decides, maybe I don't belong on the police force. Mm -hmm. um, and meanwhile, Lil Slugger's ready to again attack uh, Misai, but she just fucking laughs in his face and points out how, despite everything, they've moved forward. And, you know, Keiichi's always stood as this sort of like this pillar in her life who's always been like, you know, no matter what happens, we can always move forward. We can always do something and, you know, we'll take care of it together. So she notes that, you know, she'll never again wish for death and she'll go back for the operation knowing that, you know, she wants to stand by this man. Mm -hmm. She points out that humans are stronger than he thinks. They're able to face reality and that sort of like little slugger. All he's doing is sort of, you know, putting a bandaid on something. He's not ultimately fixing the problem. And even goes as far to say that he and Maromi are the same sort of thing where all they can do is give temporary relief to people, whereas in the long term, it ultimately means nothing. And Keiichi notices, um, while he's talking to uh, Inukai, how good his wife is to him. And almost, he, I think at some point he almost says like, oh, it's, she's almost too good to me. <laughs> <laughs> and he notes that he's sort of like given up on the dream of being a cool old timey cop. Because, you know, it, it, he's he's missed his chance, you know, he's clearly like, He's, he's in a position where, like, he just doesn't fit in. Like, I think a part of, like, uh... Crime doesn't work the way 
he wants it to anymore. Right, he just wants to catch, you know, he can wanna, he kind of wants it to be like the good old days where you'd catch a catch a robber and stuff, but you know, I think part of Maniwa's sort of like understanding of Makoto that he didn't have shows how like out of touch he is or how he feels with being a cop. But then Inokai points out that there's still plenty for Keichi to do or he thinks so. And he opens the door of the bar and outside in the town, it's it's sort of like it reverts. It's it's a different art style, and it sort of reverts to sort of like early post-war Japan, like his childhood. Yeah, like fifties or so. Yeah, fifties, sixties, somewhere around there. And in this world, there are old tiny burglars that he can chase and become a hero, and he can do all the things he wanted to do when he grew up. Mm-hmm. And we cut back to Keiichi's wife, and she's sort of like, you know, sitting in her house waiting for um, her husband to come home. She doesn't know where he is. And uh, Maniwa appears in sort of like this weird getup, sort of like a hoodie and like these ridiculous like computer glasses he's built. Mm-hmm. He's got like radios strapped to himself. Yeah, and he goes to talk to uh, Misai, and Misai's like, He's not home. He's he's not coming home. And, you know, Maniwa gets shocked and prepares to go look for Keiichi. All right. Um, so my notes for episode 12 start with, Wolfa Dofa, this is a weird one. <laughs> oh, it sure is. It, it opens, like, with a real striking shot. Yeah. Um, this episode is episode 12, Radio Man. Radar Man. Radar Man. Uh, um, <laughs> so yeah, um, Maniwa is like on on top of a building doing his best um, Batman the Animated Series impression. Right. Um, so this this episode opens up with like uh, uh, Maniwa's sort of like things about, you know, paran- uh, it, it's more information about Lil Slugger. He's got like paranoia, it's his lifeblood, and you know, like the, the strength that he has is the fear that other people have of him. And it it's like going down the street, and then it pans to Maniwa having a fucking sword fight with Little Slugger. Well, Big Little oh, Slugger. Right. And uh, it's, just, it's just all sort of disgusting, like, uh, like really disgusting, like, monster faces coming out of Little Slugger. Like, he's become less human. And through this, like, really kind of well-done sort of, like, jumping around sword fight, um, we see, like, his, uh, uh, Mitsuhiro's sword turns into an umbrella, so, like, there is that blending of what's real and what's not, but he's taking real damage from Lil Slugger's attacks. Mm-hmm. But, ultimately, Lil Slugger runs away, and he realizes he's not strong enough, so he goes to, to meet the, the old man, sort of holy warrior style, like, he's gotten fully into this old man is the sage. Right. He, he has taken Makoto's role in some senses. But yeah, he he talks to the old man, um, and the old man actually dies, and, um, wait, what does the old man say? Like, uh, dance with the bunny. Dance with the bunny. Oh, right. Um, so- (laughs) Which leads into- Dance with the bunny, almost a very literal metaphor, because, um, he's watching, like, the interview with, um, Sagi- on the TV, and, like, when she's showing her old, like, pictures, like, her old drawings of Hiromi, he notices something, um, 
first of all, there's like a little picture of something that looks like Lil Slugger in her notes as well. Yeah. Yeah, he notices like a little slugger. So, um and then he he meets a tiny anime babe with bunny bunny ears. girl spirit thing. Mhm. <laughs> And Who, she's um, like, oh, dance with the bunny. Must be this bunny girl <laughs> I, I'm seeing in the, the reflections of the mirror, these windows. I mean, like, honestly, I don't think he would have needed to be told to dance with the bunny to see what was going on with that. Yeah, and so let's let's talk about him for a bit. He's he's way lame when it comes to actually the reality. Like, he he, he looks like he does from the, the recap episode when he's in, um, he's in the fantasy world. But in reality, he's just, like, in this really ratty hoodie, and his glasses just pick up radio signals. Mm-hmm. Like, he has a button on them, and they spin real stupid, and they pick up radio signal. Like, it is clear that he has not been taking care of himself. He probably has been living on the street for weeks at yeah. this point. But yeah, so he, he follows the bunny, and he's led to the, the otaku's house. Right, from the, from the, from the uh, Harumi episode. Right. Uh, he's made a couple of appearances aside from that, but mostly uh, you know him from that. And like all of these anime figures are just talking to him. Are just alive. Yeah, it's terrifying. And um, something weird is that they refer to him as a stupid doll, but right, they're the all otaku. literally figures. Right. They they refer to the otaku as a stupid doll. Right. And and they and also you see the otaku is making figures of all of the victims. Mm-hmm. But anyways, the, the the anime figures are here to help solve the case. Right. They're on the case. They they help uh, Manawa uh, track down uh, Sagi's old home because they they find that uh, they they hack into the police together and they mm-hmm. find that um, there was an attack similar to Little Sluggers ten years ago. Right. Where Sukiko Sagi was the victim, mm-hmm. and the assailant was never found. Right. So he goes up to where she grew up, and he he's like talking to her father. And um, as a kid, Sagi had a puppy named Marumi. Mm-hmm. And one day, um, a little slugger attacked her, and. She lost control of Marumi, and Marumi ran into traffic. No, 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 but no, 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 no. Little Slugger attacked the dog. That's the that's oh, the story oh, we're going oh. with. Okay, Little Slugger attacked the dog, and uh, he talks about how sort of like he knows that that's not the truth, but mm-hmm. he's stayed quiet about it because sort of he he felt bad. He felt like he had pressured her so much. Um. That he felt bad that she had to lie to him. She was so scared of him. Right. He talks about sort of like um, how he was too strict and, you know, had too much discipline for her. And how, you know, not having like a, a mother figure in her life may have affected how he ultimately treated um, Sukiko. And so, yeah, Sukiko was so scared to tell him whatever the truth is that he he just went along with the story and kind of like, helped to, you know, tried to help to find uh, the little slugger at that time, like playing into her delusion just so that, you know, this was the one time that sort of like he was willing to, to you know, look the other way. 
because mm-hmm. he felt like it was ultimately his own fault. Then at the same time, we see Sukiko herself um, being pressured again, like she's been out of the hospital long enough and everyone is waiting for her to make her new character. Right, like her boss is getting like visibly like very frustrated, like he gives her a ride home and then just berates her for not like coming up with like a new idea. Right, like kind of attacks her in the car. Mm-hmm. And refer- he refers to her as a moon that is barely afloat thanks to the sun that is Maromi. Sort of treating it like this, this you know, huge deal and how he's just sick of dealing with her personal needs and that she needs to give results because it's a job and kind of like pulls back. It's like, oh my God, uh, just too much pressure, you know? Ha ha ha. Mm-hmm. Uh, forget I said anything. Bye. And... He drives off the screen and immediately gets killed by Little Slugger. <laughs> yep, it's uh, like, it's such a hard turn. Like it's, Little Slugger smashes his car and kills him, and just shows up as Big Boy Slugger. Mm-hmm. And way then too it's big. like then it's at like the funeral for him, mm-hmm. and um, everybody's talking shit about Sagi, like sort of like blaming her. Right, it's like, oh, Sukiko should have known that he was cornered and that little slugger would come after him. He was murdered because Sukiko Sagi can't tell that fucking, you know, this this guy was cornered and he just kept pushing him. But yeah. Anyways, um, it doesn't matter because Maromi's here to take care of her. Don't right. listen to those people. They don't get it. Then we have a moment where uh, Maniwa calls Sukiko at work. And, uh, oh, right. And um, Maromi, like, actually, like, cuts the line. Right, because- like, uh, Maniwa claims to have solved the mystery. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he's like, your father says you don't have to suffer alone anymore, you can be honest, and then Maromi literally cuts the line. With scissors. Right, with scissors, and is like, no, you can't do that, you know, now that your memories are coming back, you're gonna be cornered, and Little Slugger bursts through into the office. <laughs> and then, as they're running um, to get away from Little Slugger, Maniwa appears to fight Little Slugger using the original bat that um uh Sukiko claimed was the bat that killed uh Maromi the dog Maromi the the real dog mm-hmm. and so there's this huge fight it seems like Lil Slugger is sort of scared of this original bat for some reason but no matter how much he gets attacked he's regenerating and um that's when Sagi like escapes into like the same world that uh Chief Akari is Right, like, Keiichi finds himself in, like, his school, reliving memories of, like, girls gossiping about him and how cool he is, but when he g- tries to go into the room, Sukiko uh, pops out, and the world sort of connect there. Mm-hmm. And then, like, all the merchandise for Maromi disappears, like, it's just, like, shots of, like, the world, and, like, just... Maromis are just like missing from where they all used to be. Right, like there are posters up that just have a Maromi shaped disappearance on them. Mm-hmm. And it it's and so yeah, Mar- Maromi sort of talks about disappearing from the world to protect Sukiko. Mm-hmm. And um uh Ikari's wife is in the hospital. Right, she's taken to the hospital and she finds herself on an elevator with the old man, the one who had died on her oh, and right. she just asks to go to her husband. But uh, more than anything else is uh, is that the, this black flood that starts. Oh, right. How could I forget? How could you have forgotten? Uh, well, because it, it's, it plays more into next episode. But like you see 
you they they like zoom out and everyone is suddenly affected by little slugger and it feels in trouble because Maromi's not there and this black flood engulfs Tokyo. <laughs> Oh. But that that leads directly into episode of 13, uh, the final episode, which is the title. Oh, jeepers creepers. I'm so glad you're taking this one. My one line note is just what the fuck. So uh, Maromi, uh, Maromi, Sukiko and Keiichi are hanging out in the in the old town. And Maromi talks about how Keiichi's town is where he can be his happiest and he can also be himself. You know, he can just be who he wants to be. And it's it's interesting because they're talking to townspeople and they're just like saying straight up things like, oh, little slugger won't come here. Don't worry. You know, sort of this this disconnect between, I guess, the real world and this false world that has been created. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, in the real world, Maromi fever is too strong. Everyone needs a Maromi. Maromi has disappeared and people need him. So this this black ooze or something starts engulfing the world like you see different characters like uh the otaku appears and after he's finished making all of his um all of his figures he like goes outside and is suddenly just engulfed in this flood of black ooze and people standing at the toy stores to get their maromis are uh uh, taken you can't escape the ooze (laughs) and there's a great part where the the mafia guy from before the yakuza guy from before um, is like watching the TV and he's watching the news and the newscaster gets swallowed by the black ooze and it cuts to static and he like gets closer to the TV to figure out what's going on and the black ooze shoots through the TV and engulfs him. It it seems like it's feeding on the fear made by Maromi's disappearance. Mm-hmm. Then back in the, the, the fake world, we find that everyone is treating Sukiko as Keiji's daughter. Right. And, you know, Keiichi notes that just sort of, like, ultimately, I don't think anything really matters. And, you know, Maniwa gets through into the world using his sick radio glasses and kind of tries to explain the situation about how the people depended on Maromi as sort of, like, this emotional crutch because of the little slugger situation happening at the same time. And now that she's disappeared from the world... The paranoia can only grow and sort of like consume the 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 people of Tokyo like wholly. Right. It's almost as if Little Slugger is an agent of Whoa Scary stuff. I lost it. <laughs> and he and he says that Sukiko is needed to stop Little Slugger. And as he's trying to explain all this, Keiichi just fucking throws a rock into the TV playing it. Uh, happy, you know, he's kind of happy to live in his delusion. Right, and all the, the people around him start applauding. Yeah, they're like, oh, he got rid of the great evil message! And he, like, he, like they, they, he suddenly has, like, a cop uniform on, just, like, everyone's praising him. But, um, he, he turns and he sees that his wife has appeared in his fantasy world. And he sort of, like, panics. He's like, wait, she shouldn't be here. You know, because at some point he's just like decided this is just his world. And he sort of continues to see his wife, like how they first met, like they go to a bar and he finds her like serving them. And Maromi sort of fighting back against the wife for invading this this private space. 
Right, like, Maromi actually actively deletes the bar from the world once they leave it. Right, and so uh, Tsukiko and uh, Keiji run, and um, they find themselves at a at a festival. And, you know, Keiji turns one way and then looks back at Tsukiko, and Tsukiko has regressed to the age of a very young girl and has uh, the original Maromi the dog with her as well. And so... Uh, it turns out that, you know, because this world is his dream, sort of everything he wanted comes true. He wanted to have a daughter with his wife because he he hated his dad and didn't want a son in case <laughs> he ended up having a son that also hated him. I mean, it's good logic. Which is, you know, it's it's a way to look at it. But it's sort of like his uh, his wife appears again and sort of like, He's, he's kind of forced to have these flashbacks of the way that, you know, he, with his life, um, in the real world kind of went with as it relates to his wife, sort of all these, all these moments that they've had together and all these ways that they've sort of pushed back against all of these troubles that they've faced. And ultimately she passes away because she's, uh, she was dying and the, the, um, surgery she was going through couldn't save her in time. So she dies and disappears from the world, and Keiichi kind of realizes something and remembers sort of the words that he gave to his wife that 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 gave her the strength to move forward. And ultimately, he he moves forward too. And a kind of a great moment where he picks up a bat and like a rock, and he just like he literally smashes the world by uh, taking a baseball bat to it. Yeah, it's it's great, and it's like the way he swings it even like mimics the little slugger. Which is yeah, like a there's a really good cut where he does the little slugger hit. And, you know, Maromi's like, but this is your place. This is your world. And he sort of says something like, my place disappeared from this world a long time ago. The reality is that there is no place for me anymore, but that's the reality I have to face. It's like real cool. Mm-hmm. But uh, when he comes through, he is, he's like walking out of a subway station. Sukiko so ends up uh, getting cornered by him and uh, Maniwa. And we're kind of we're, we we learn the the truth of the whole situation. Sugiko invented Little Slugger ten years ago to sort of explain how her dog died because what ended up actually happening is she had a um, a menstrual cramp. Oh, that's why oh, she that's grabs her stomach and you know gets sick. Oh, uh, I don't know about lady stuff. Sorry. Fair enough. And so she kind of lets go of the dog and the dog ends up running into the street and getting run over. And so, you know, technically it's of her negligence. So she's scared of her father and she invents this person that, you know, attacked the the dog. And because she suddenly had this pressure again, she had this idea to reinvent Little Slugger as someone who attacked her. And, you know, and it's continued to build this whole thing up. And, you know, her father just wants her to be honest with him at this point and tell the truth. And it's um it's it's kind of heartwarming in a way because it's like, you know, he did this because he loves her so much that he didn't want to continue to be this sort of like source of um fear for her. Mhm. Like he act- actively goes with like this thing that he knows is a lie just because he doesn't he doesn't want her to feel like she should be scared of him or right. anything like that. And uh, it ends up being that um, the little slugger ooze appears again and just, like, devours Maniwa. 
Mm-hmm. And then Maromi, uh, kind of like sucks up all of the other smaller Maromis and creates this barrier versus the ooze so that um, Sukiko and Keiji can run away. Uh, Sukiko gets swallowed up trying to save uh, what looks like the real Maromi dog, and Keiji gets sucked up as well. Ultimately, Sukiko is reliving the memory of when Maromi died, and when she sees her old self claim no responsibility, she cries and apologizes to Maromi for the mistake she made. At which point, little slugger disappears from the world. Like, she's finally come to terms and accepted the fact that she made this problem and she has to clean it up right. by being honest. It, it's it's her responsibility. Right. So, we we skip two years later, and it looks like Tokyo is back to normal after a rebuilding effort. Mm-hmm. The same scroll from episode one plays of everyone denying each other, but uh, or everyone denying responsibility, but it's changed. They're all sort of talking about, you know, they're actually trying to deal with their problems. And also, it seems like all of the all of the comments are sort of subtle denials of Maromi as a as an entity because they just refer to like, oh, the pink thing, uh, or you know, oh, no, I I didn't want a dog, I wanted a cat, or things like that. Oh, okay. But then it also turns out there's a new cat mascot, uh, Meow, who's getting big. It's a good name. Uh, Sukiko has become an office worker. Keiichi's still working as a guard. Uh, and we kind of see all we 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 see Kawazu again, still working as a journalist, but he seems less skeevy. Yeah. Uh, we see Mitsuhiro who or uh, Maniwa, who's just gotten completely white in his hair and has sort of become mm-hmm. the new sage. Right, he's the, he's the new old man writing uh, math equations on the ground in the parking lot of the hospital. And at the very end, he comes to a startled surprise, and in the final scene, he sort of makes a claim that no mystery stays unsolved forever, and that, um, and that sort of, it's all one reoccurring dream. And it, it sort of, exp- it tells you like, hey, maybe now go and watch the old episodes again and see if you can find hidden clues in the mysteries. Right. Um, you got the bad ending. You got to do it again on hard mode. Right. <laughs> and make sure to grab the goddess bracelet this time. But yeah, that's um, that was uh, really long, but it just feels because everything is important in this series. It feels like like, yeah, Every detail is, like, crafted to be part of the story, which is kind of fascinating, in a way. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of fat to be cut from this. Yeah. Oh. Like, you could maybe cut the three episodes in the middle that are sort of about sort of like a little slugger's yeah. development as a, as a social construct, but I, I think that it's, it, it plays into the conclusion more right. so. Especially after the full, after you watch the full series. Yeah. Um, this series was kind of, like, stressful for me. Like, I, I really <laughs> enjoyed, like, the first, like, seven or so episodes. I was, like, way into it. And then, like, by the end, it's just, like, it's so impossible to take, like, this series, like, at face value. Like, you really have to be, like, okay, what are the metaphors? What what am I taking from this? What is the series about to me? Right, because you get this idea suddenly that, like, um, you know, th- 
the, the, the fiction and the reality of the story blends so much at the end that there isn't like a metaphor. It becomes real just because of the way that this social phenomenon has exploded. It's uh, it's nuts. Yeah. It, but I think it's ugh. I think it's good for that. I think it's a yeah. good series. It is quality anime. <sighs> but like I, I meant to watch this series twice um before doing this, but like after watching it once, I was just like it just wiped me out. I just couldn't like it tells you to go back, but I just I couldn't bring myself to do it. <laughs> I was just so tired. I was like, oh, oh, that's good. And I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't do it again. Right. But there are things that you just kind of grab, like having recognized the, the change, you go, oh, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. There, there are small things that you like, you recognize and you remember. And it's like, oh, okay, this makes more sense now. Or this, like, I, I can put together the pieces. Mm hmm. Yeah, so let's uh, let's let's talk about it. Um, there there are a lot of bigger themes in the story that we can go into, mm -hmm. and I guess the first one we can hit is sort of the the central theme. It's um, it's about avoiding responsibility and looking for shortcuts, and we sort of see that in in each of these stories in a different way. Like the ultimate thing is um, Sukiko avoiding responsibility. Uh, not only in having to admit that, you know, her, you know, she accidentally got her dog killed, but also then that, you know, she can't come up with a new character in time. Right. And I mean, with Ichi, there could be like something where it's like, oh, wow, he he's unpopular because, yeah, he looks like a little slugger. But maybe it's just his personality. Yeah, you know? he's kind of a dickbag. Yeah. He, and so he he constantly tries to like avoid the actual issue, which is he looks like a little slugger and puts all of his blame on Ushiyama. Because mm -hmm. Ushiyama's causing these issues. You know, oh, he's the one who's creating this th these lies, the slander about me. And you see yeah. it in um you see it a, a bit in like the the Harumi episode where Harumi and Maria kind like Harumi, if she is the dominant um the, the dominant personality is trying to like avoiding actually having to deal with Maria and it's just like oh well I'm getting married now time to throw out all that stuff and throw that part of my life away without actually trying to deal with the fact that she is housing two personalities in her body and she doesn't even acknowledge it with her husband right like it just clearly wants to try to take it on herself and doesn't want to, to have anyone know that she has problems then we see it with um, Masami, who, because of this, you know, this issue that he's made with um, with the mafia, instead of dealing with it, you know, by kind of losing the things that he cares about, like you know, his house more right. than anything else, instead of giving away his house, he's looking for the shortcut. And he's like, oh, well, I'll just steal two million yeah. yen. Right. I'll just rob. Right. And as it becomes a bigger and bigger cost. It's one of those things where, like, well, shit, um, where do we go from here? I, I can only go forward because suddenly he's lost control. He's looking for shortcuts, ended up with him in a worse place constantly until ultimately he's 
attacked, I guess. I mean, even things with, like, episode 9, with, like, the women gossiping, like, the lady can't, she can't just, like, make up a story. She has to actually get it from her husband, who might, like, has been attacked by Little Slugger. Right, and, like, and, you know, everyone else is sort of, like, making up these stories, but the way that they tell the stories is, like, kind of attacking her. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, your story's dumb compared to ours, so, you know, she's looking for a way to come up with new ideas, and her new idea is, my husband got attacked. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's it's such a big part of it, and it, it comes to a head with, like, when they talk about how, you know, Lil Slugger's only a temporary relief, and it's, you know, kind of the same as Maromi, this, this concept comes together as everyone looking to avoid the actual issues they're handling. You know, uh, the guy who can't admit that he's fucking up this anime production and keeps taking it out on people, possibly killing them. Not sure. Right. That's just a fan theory. <laughs> everyone else, you know, you know, everyone else is the problem. Mm-hmm. It, and we see that in sort of the opening bit with just everyone else blaming other people for their problems or trying to kind of like skirt their way out of work. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a huge thing. And ultimately, all of these things pile up into, you know, the the little slugger at the end. Like, everyone has sort of put their reliance on little slugger as a crutch. You know, oh, little slugger caused this. Oh, it caused this. Oh, we're all in trouble because of little slugger, you know? Right. Like, it becomes an, it becomes an epidemic. Yeah, it's overtaken the town. Right, every, everyone has this big excuse now that's all caused because Tsukiko couldn't admit that she's just having trouble with a character, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, her desire to escape is so strong that she ends up building this fake story around um, around a, a, an assailant that everyone sort of sees it now as, uh, as a viable, like, way of getting out of stuff. Like, this goes a bit into some of the other things, but, like, how many of those attacks are real up to the point where Little Slugger starts killing people? You know, where where does the paranoia start I, to get so much? I mean, like, even once Little Slugger starts killing people, I mean, the first victim is a kid who is actively on the suicide forms, like... Right. Was, maybe he just was gonna... Maybe he con- offed himself. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, while the metaphor eventually becomes reality, and we have this point where, like, oh, you know, the physical manifestation of... This, this avoidance comes to life and starts killing people. There are a number of attacks and deaths that can be directed towards other characters. Like, it just, like, doing it themselves. So, like, did Ichi attack himself to, to avoid conflict? We don't know. Did he attack, or, well, actually, I was gonna we say, know did who he attack Ushiyama, Ushi, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like it's... Like, I want to say that there was never a little slugger and that there's no little slugger, but the only, like, problem I'm having with that is, like... The ending? <laughs> no, um, it was actually who attacked Kawazu, even, in the first episode. Yeah, Kawazu's the only one that really doesn't fit that, unless you consider him looking for shortcuts as sort of, like, stalking a woman to try to, you know, figure that out. But that might have been, um, that could have been Sukiko. Yeah, th- like, that's honestly what I was thinking, but, like, wouldn't he have seen her, or... 
Like, there, there is no real explanation for that. So it might be Sukiko that attacked him. The thing about that is just how open-ended suddenly everything becomes when you make the realization that, you know, there, when, once we get to the ending and there is no little slugger, there's only sort of this, the, this, um, this culture of blaming others for our own problems. Mm-hmm. I feel like by, like, the end of it, I was pretty, like, by the end of it, the first time I watched it, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. How did they rebuild Tokyo in two years? But, like, whenever I came back to it, like, I gave it some time to digest, I was like, oh, okay, this didn't even happen. Like, this is just, like, uh, Sagi, like, coming to grips with it and admitting it and quitting her job as an artist or and being just fired or whatever or yeah and just like the world wasn't engulfed in goo like literally well i mean but uh, mm. it probably wasn't right like that's a further metaphor but yeah That comes to another point that um, I wanted to bring up, which is just like, what actually happened, what's real and what's not, and is that important? Like, is the distinction between reality and fiction in this story important, or do the themes still come across regardless of whether or not you go like, Lil Slugger is a real entity, or Lil Slugger is the scapegoat that the entire world uses, or the entire, you know, the entirety of Tokyo uses to explain these these phenomena you know these these you know situations that people want to get out of right because the holy warrior um episode when we learn that makoto's doing it it doesn't matter that it, whether or not it's actually happened he's got the idea that this little kid's going around you know whacking whacking kneecaps and he just thinks that's he just thinks that's cool it's something sensational that's what he wants you know before I mean, he dies like he's, he's doing it though like he's actually going out right he's doing the one it person hurting. doing it Right. But you get the idea that any of the other attacks may have been uh, self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, you know, some crazy stuff was happening through that tsunami. Taiko could have just, like, either accidentally or intentionally hit herself and, you know, kind of taken some memory loss or faked memory loss. Um, with Kawase again, do you ever, like, see him, like, with bandages or anything? Like, does he have any, like physical i don't ever think like, you see him um like it damaged i don't think see think you see him attacked so like w- like what i was thinking is that maybe he just faked it so that he was like oh that he was like, part vin- of the thing he was like a, he was part of the attention yeah like he wanted to like well if i fake it then i can write the story right here's my first hand experience plus that gets me out of having to pay um, the old man the money for his uh, <laughs> hospital fees. Right. And that's another, like, that was, like, basically his, I feel like that's what you see him trying to, like, he's making excuses, like, oh, I can't pay this here, have some flowers instead. Right. And, and you know, we see sort of, like, the, the, the fighting of back against that culture in episode 11 with Misai sort of, like, talking about how uh, Little Slugger is just a temporary relief, like, Maybe she thinks herself, like, oh, I could get attacked myself or I could commit suicide and it would be blamed on Little Slugger. But she realizes that that's not 
a proper solution. That's just a, a way to get out of having to deal with her problems. Yeah. I don't think I really like Masai, though, because she's like, oh, I was being the perfect wife. I was, you know, I was cleaning. I was doing dishes. I was cooking food. And it's like, oh, okay, I guess... I guess that's what the perfect wife is. Well, that's, okay. I mean, to her. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, I think that's a different situation in some ways because she can't kind of do anything else. Like, the way she talks about her weak constitution, it seems like she should have died, like, 20 years ago. Like, that she is dealing right. with so much pain. Like, when we see the, the, the flashback or something in, the, in that fake world, uh, like, she's doing her job as a waitress and literally, like, partway through just curls up and starts having violent pains and reactions in the middle of a restaurant. Right, that is true. So, like, I think she's just doing what she can. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think at one point, um, you know, like, uh, uh, Keiichi talks about how one time he didn't come home for nine days because of his work, and he, he came home to his wife sleeping on the table with nine meals left out for dinner you know for whenever he came home right it's just her way of showing how much she appreciates him given her situation yeah that's true yeah i don't think it's it's i don't think it's something further like satoshi khan is a sexist oh yeah because he i mean also he does have a, a bigger focus on sort of like female characters and sort of how they're seen in society with his other movies as far as i'm aware right I, I don't think I was going for that. I just didn't think I, I really liked That's fair. No, that I get part that. of it. Um, sure. Look, I'm just trying to find um, chinks in this armor because <laughs> guess what, guys? It's the perfect anime. It's we the did best. It. Wow. Wow. We get, you don't have to do Choco Disaster anymore. You found it. It's true. We just, we did it. But yeah, um, like, I don't think ultimately it is important where we make the distinction, like, the distinction is cool, and when you go back and you see, like, oh, how are all of these connected to sort of the the self-inflicted violence sort of thing going on, you know? How is How are these all connected in a way that, like, everyone's just finding an excuse? But I don't think it's ultimately important. Like, if you just do a surface read of it through the, through the 13 episodes, I think you still get sort of the same feeling out of it if you don't get the same you know we get the same meaning out of it even if you don't get the same like experience out of it mm-hmm. then another thing that that comes up often in this episode is sort of the way that um like rumors are spread and the influence they have because they talk about how little slugger's power is directly related to the the paranoia and fear of him so, you know, the more powerful he becomes as this figure, the more people are scared of him, the more people look for these crutches, the more people use him as an excuse. And we sort of have this different look between how the media does it, how it develops word of mouth, and sort of like the sensationalism behind all of that. Because like the, like the you know, the, uh, it's talked about a number of times uh, uh, in different media, but like the way that the news talks about stuff they 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 focus on sort of these negative stories these like horrid characters because that sensationalism is what what gets views that's what hits and so the media constantly talks about little slugger it's this big phenomenon 
and they're constantly reporting on it, every attack, every everything, you know? Mm-hmm. E- even as like, oh, we captured him, oh, we didn't capture him, oh, he was found dead. We get sort of this full look through this, this story through them, and the way that they, they develop on it, and the way that that becomes word of mouth, because you, throughout the entire series, you see these, these mothers and women gossiping about, oh, do you, do you think your child, like, it starts out simple, like, oh, do you think your child's a little slugger? Oh, right. I can't believe a child would do something like this. And then it starts to build up. You know, we get to, uh, ex- we get to etc. And they're talking about, oh, he showed up at a baseball game and just, you know, whacked <laughs> the shit out of this pitcher. Or, you know, like, oh, did you hear that this kid died because little slugger attacked him while he's having a panic attack over entrance exams? Right. This, this boxer didn't want to eat all this food, but little slugger murdered him. <laughs> Right, after he ate the food, for some reason. Whatever. And, like, so we see the way that develops, because it's, and and ultimately it comes to, like, oh, well, suddenly I heard uh, Little Slugger's a big beefcake. You know, he's got big old muscles, and he's ten feet tall, and, you know. Right. He, like, he, like, ate a, like, split a bull in half or whatever. They start making up these ridiculous things just because the, 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 the hype around him has gotten so big that they just need new things to talk about, because... It just keeps happening. Mm-hmm. Like, I, as the rumors grow, he grows more powerful, and that just, like, it just, it's a constant cycle. It feeds itself with people wanting to spread more. Right, they, they want stories to tell. Like, you know, I think it's sort of like a, a trope, as it were, that sort of like, you know, the, the gossipy kind of like mothers, but like, mm-hmm. the, that plays into this whole thing, like, they're constantly shown, like, because it's related to kids and stuff. You know, and, you know, the media m- media sensationalizes it as, like, oh, you know, the delinquents these days with the recession in our economy are causing these problems. Oh, it's video games. You know, they're, they're, right. they're, they're playing into sort of these, these different tropes and things that justify why it's happening without actually trying to deal with it. Again, coming back to the avoiding responsibility, it's like, oh, well, video games are the problem. We should do something. And they don't do anything. Or, oh, it's the recession mm-hmm. in the economy. But, you know, what can you do about that? Like, Right. It's blaming these concepts that are kind of unknowable in a way just to, to justify these attacks. And ultimately, it just builds and builds into mm-hmm. this, this huge force. Right. Just making excuses for the excuses at a certain point. Right. And so I think that's, that's a big thing about it, too, is just the way that information sort of spreads. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have, like, Maromi. Oh, Maromi's the cute dog that everyone's so excited about. And then it's like, oh, well, is a peaceful character. We all got to turn to Maromi in times of trouble. And, you know, <laughs> they build this whole anime about that, Mellow Maromi, where it's just like, uh, you know, this guy's like, oh, I can't play baseball. And Maromi's just like, take a rest. Don't don't worry about it. Problems? Not problems. <laughs> so it's, it's this... <laughs> It's sort of this weird experience with that, you know, there it's, it's, it's the way that sort of like culture almost spreads based around these things. Right. So, um, uh, I'm one, one other thing I noticed is the way that like death constantly changes the experience of this anime, and I, I, I it al- always in a very literal way, like the the entire plot of this is spurred on by the death of uh, by the death of Maromi the dog, right? 
and the way that Tsukiko handles that problem of having in a in a moment of pain like let loose the dog and the dog died like you know she comes up with this huge elaborate lie of an attacker that came after her and killed the dog and that then because she is forgiven for that transgression and if they pretend like that's real it certainly expands into well i got away with this once i can get away with mm-hmm. it again right she can use the same excuse a, a second time. Right, ten years separated so that hopefully people don't remember. Well, I mean, it's even in a different town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you see then when Little Slugger turns violent and the first death happens. Right. You know, we have, we Makoto. have, we have Makoto's death. Like, that, that springs forward this huge chain of events. Like, suddenly Little Slugger's violent. Suddenly he's killing people. You know, people are dying and, you know, everyone loses their job over it because they weren't able to to prevent this death. And it sets forward the the way their lives spread in so many different ways because Maniwa turns into a nut job and (laughs) Keiichi, you know, has to go to a security guard. He has to run multiple jobs to support his his family. Right. And, you know, that's that's the spread where suddenly, like, you know, uh, Little Slugger gets so big they have to start, you know mass-producing Maromi content. Mm-hmm. To just keep people calm and and just put a band-aid over the situation. Yeah, and so, you know, the death just keeps spiraling and spiraling, and th- more deaths happen. Like, you know, Little Slugger kills a bunch of people at that, um, at that outdoor bath. Mm-hmm. Um, right. He, uh, maybe Little Slugger, but also maybe, uh, maybe, uh, now Yuki kills the entire anime production crew. So do you think like it was actually a little slugger at the outdoor bath? Because like he does have like that very emotional response to seeing like these three yeah, it ghosts. Might not, I mean it might not have been Makoto, but it might have been them seeing right, it could have been like a co- like a copycat. Another or copycat or something. Because they do see him and he's I mean, if he can see ghosts, he's freaked out. Like it's possible. Um mm-hmm. But I and I honestly believe that the, all the anime staff are well, well, except for the writer or not the writer, the um, the one he finds dead, right, may have all been killed by him just out of frustration for his job because he shows how violent he is when he's like attacking the you know he's attacking that box of keyframes or whatever and then knocks mm-hmm. the power out with a bat. Like, he clearly knows what to do with that And thing. also, how violent he is when he literally murders uh, Nobunaga. Right, we know at least that he completely murdered Nobunaga, which is a funny little thing because uh, the real Oda Nobunaga was also taken down by a subordinate who betrayed him. So, you know, that, that plays in. It's, it's Just a little inside joke for you Japanese people. <laughs> yep. And so it's like, yeah, um, it's just a situation where... Uh, you know these these can all be developed, and like the 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 first murder becomes a, a like an impetus for more murders. And the way that like uh, uh, Misai's death ends up being able to save Keiichi from his own sort of like self-induced sort of like you know uh, happy place or you know his his escape right. from the world. It takes you know it takes his wife literally dying in front of him. And reminding him why, you know, he's done all of this work, why he's been through right. all of this. Why he can't just 
pretend like it all doesn't exist, why he can't just give up or take a shortcut or just like escape to this to this place that just doesn't exist. He right. has to like face the world like he told her that he that they both should. Yeah, and you could get the idea that this this false world is just like a projection of what he wants. And, you know, if we if we take the if we take further the idea that all of this is is metaphorical, basically he's just been drinking his life away for, you know, the entire night or whatever, like just sort of mm-hmm. trying to escape from going home because going home will remind him of sort of the you know the compromises he's had to make and the world he has to live in, right? Like not necessarily because his wife is there, but just because that's the that's the point where he has to accept all of the things in his life from then on. Mm-hmm. He he, he doesn't get to be a cop anymore. Even, even if he was, he it's not the world that he'd want it to be in. Right. It's not. It's, he he doesn't get to be the detective or the cop that he wants to be. So yeah, um, it's uh, it it's uh, it's interesting to look at sort of the different pieces of this and how they ultimately play into the narrative. Like, and that comes down to like, you know, the the ending reveals a ton, and I want to know what your thoughts at the end are. Is it all a metaphor, or is it this this sort of like this this uh, realism fantasy sort of blend? That you know the 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 fears of the people can can turn into a, a, a literal monster that you know kind of consumes them all. Like, what's your own personal opinion on what happens? Um, I think it is all a metaphor. Like, I feel like if I ever like go back and rewatch this anime, which I don't know, I might do um, with a with a break for sure. Right. Um, that's how I'm gonna view it as, like, like there are lines between this reality and this fantasy, and I'm gonna have to draw them for myself, for sure, but I feel like that's what I'm going to do mm-hmm. when it, like, that's, that's what I do with this. Yeah, I, I think that certainly like the 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 more introspective sort of like take on this series is the one where it is it is all a group of people who decide that they have found an easy out for their problems mm-hmm. and not so much that he is a literal monster and i think it I, I think you know the the pieces work out really well in that way right the the equation Fits. Right. Um, it was fascinating, like, kind of getting to the end of an episode and going like, oh, that's why the equation thing goes on, because you don't really know why the old man's so important, but he is, in some ways, predicting all of the major deaths up until his sickness takes him. Right. Until his own death. Right. Which causes more changes. What? Oh, and his, um, and like, uh, he doesn't show up in the episode. He doesn't like. He doesn't come up with Ushiyama's attack, and he doesn't come up with um, Kasami's attack because they aren't by the real little slugger. Like clearly, he has some kind of connection <laughs> to the whole thing, right? 
it's it's a it's a, it's a fascinating thing to explore from different angles. But I do, yeah, I think I agree with the idea of watching it back. The the big reveal is that you know the 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 attacks are all committed by the the, the victims and just trying to mm-hmm. find a way to to escape from the the reality that they live in. Right. Just trying to find like a relief or an exit. And I think sort of the biggest one of that where it's like you really you really get the sense that this is, you know, this is sort of their their perfect situation is um with uh Tycho. Because Tycho I think has the most sort of tragic um <laughs> ultimately like backstory that goes along with this that plays into sort of like Masami's episode and the way that we see how how dirty he can get and how um villainous he can be with sort of his attacks on people the 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 uh presumed uh rape like and then it comes down to you know she loves him so much because she sees him as this hero you know he's he's winning things for her he's so happy to you know she's so happy to be doing graduation with them and when she finds out that he's like basically you know taking video of her in her room in you know like a personal space that you know isn't supposed to be divided right it comes to this it comes to this head where it's like well suddenly are all the other things that he's said to me um are lies you know are all of these yeah. based around sort of this weird sexual attraction he has you know she feels disgusted by the fact that you know she was so enamored that she you know had this juvenile thought of marriage with him you know right and like she didn't mind sleeping in the same room as him, and it's just... Right, which, you know, just becomes more and more uncomfortable, all these little bits, as it comes down to it. And, like, expecting him to save her, like, when those bullies come in the flashback. Like, it's a mm-hmm. it's a whole huge thing. And, you know, kind of everyone sort of has a tragic, you know, a tragic part to their story. Even if you might feel that, like, some of it is justified, like, Ichi being the biggest dick in class... You know, like, mm-hmm. clearly he's not, like, a good kid, but he's not a murderer. Right. And he's he just ends up being unjustly, uh, like, unfairly judged by his peers. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's interesting to look at this after the fact, because there is just so much to unpack with it. And you have sort of, like, and, like, even the, um, I guess even the goofy episode uh happy family planning like we we just see sort of like tokyo in the wake of this whole thing we see kind of all around the way that other people are committing suicide and the way that other people are dissatisfied with life like people are just giving up so easily like you see these three and like it doesn't seem like they have like all that much with wrong with their life like it seems like they honestly like can still find a lot of joy in life, but they still result to suicide. Yeah, like the only the only one of them that like is given like a like a uh, uh, an explanation for sort of the 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 reason to kill themselves is zebra. And this actually, I'm not sure where this information comes from because I didn't catch it in my watch. But zebra <laughs> being uh, a, a gay man who ends up like breaking up with his lover. Who's then seen later uh, sleeping with the um, Yakuza head from Masami's episode. So, um, after 
um zebra tries to kill himself with uh well pff, that's the whole episode um <laughs> zebra tries hanging. to kill himself specifically with like the meds right you no, said with, that or you, the, uh but, which one Oh, actually, it might be with the meds. I don't remember. But, but he opens like a, a locket. You said a right? locket, and it's it's him and another man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I missed that on my watch. You see that man later with the yakuza when the yakuza gets eaten by the TV goo, right? Uh, and something uh, else, a little bit interesting, just about that episode is um, in the UK, it had to cut um, uh, the the entire scene of their attempt to hang themselves. <laughs> Just due to like a like some kind of uh some you know like the whatever their FCC equivalent is, yeah. At least it wasn't like they had to. Oh, they're we're attached to a giant sandwich and we have to chase <laughs> after it, right? But I think I think that one in particular, just because it's the only scene in that episode in which the uh, Kamome actually like is active in trying to kill herself, like it is you know. Like, the other ones, it's like, oh, they don't actually do it. But in that one, it's like, yes, I am hanging from this. So I, I see why that, of all things, would end up getting cut. Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes sense. And they, and, you know, like, they cut the boobies from the from the English version oh, of man. episode one. Yeah, like, the, the, like, frames of boobies <laughs> that show up. <laughs> oh, I can't believe it. Yeah, it's it's just like uh, you know, there's a little bit of kind of censorship there, just because yeah, it is a very like tough series, like the you know, and it's never super explicit with its stuff, but it it is very heavy in its theming and its choices. I think um, this is something that maybe I'm not smart enough to to really discuss, uh, just because I don't have the knowledge for it, but um. Like when when they talk about how the the sort of ruined Tokyo is like just after the war, I think part of that is sort right. of the 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 like the the Japanese mindset that they were in the right for the whole thing, you know they they mm-hmm. and uh, this has come up in other media about World War II about it sort of like or like at least the general public because of the way that the propaganda worked, uh, it was like you know we haven't done anything wrong we're just trying to you know. We we were just doing, you know, what's best for the country. Right. Just trying to get by. Yeah, and the, you know, the, the political leaders followed the same thing. It's this whole it's this whole situation ultimately about um you know, the the passing of blame, like, you know, we did what was best for us. You know, it can't be blamed on us because we were dragged into this or whatever. And so I don't have enough of knowledge to really expound on that, but like, you know, it's it this is something that I think has a lot of cultural ties to its uh its its origin that do um, right. that are that are i think relatable enough to to uh also relate to the american audience but also that run into these occasional problems where you know it's and as an extension of uh your problems your failures as well it's a situation of uh, of feeling, you know, feeling trapped, feeling cornered, and wanting an excuse that gets you out of that. But ultimately right. learning that you have to deal with it yourself. Like, I've certainly had my own fair share of problems where I've tried to, like, fake my way out of a, a problem, and it's actually just gotten worse for me. Um, 
This one's like really minor, but I remember in sixth grade, I failed a, a reading exam because I didn't do the, or I, I basically hadn't done the reading that was required of me. And I tried to fake, um, I tried to fake one of my parents' signatures. Oh. And it, and, and it was, uh, I was like, oh, well, my dad's signature is too illegible for me to like be able to recreate. So I'll fake my, my stepmom's one. And she's Vietnamese, and at the time, I still didn't know how to spell her last name, because when, oh. as a young child, is very hard to... So I misspelled it, uh, my teacher found out, and then my parents found out, like, and it spirals into kind of a worse situation. And that's a very small version of what uh, Paranoia Agent is about, it's just like, when you avoid these problems, and you try to, to uh, make up stories and, you know, kind of like make excuses for the things that happen, like it may make you feel better for a little bit, but ultimately all it's going to do is make it harder than to to deal with these problems later. Right. You you need to confront your problems. Yeah, that's that's kind of the big the big thing about Paranoia Asian is just learning to confront problems and learning to to kind of uh, learning when it's acceptable and unacceptable to sort of like find these crutches and find these, you know, excuses to to get away because like, you know, Maromi is a is a is a impermanent fixture in people's lives. People eventually are going to get bored and Maromi is going to become stale and then what's left if they don't have to face their problems, you know, ultimately what's, you know, what what are they going to be have to do? They it's all going to go into a panic and it would be just like the ending with or without Maromi just suddenly disappearing. Right. You know, it's finding the new Eventually crush. you gotta eventually you gotta face your problems or Tokyo's gonna get gooed. Right. Or wherever you live. Be you know, be worried. Right. Right. <laughs> it could at any point turn into goo. Mm-hmm. You could create a giant buff child <laughs> that will attack others. So yeah, just just be careful. Yeah. And you know, I um I I wish that this was a series more accessible to uh like home video or streaming. Because right. like with the rights, you know, in limbo, it's just a situation where there's just there's just nothing to grab. Right. I mean we had to go back in time and watch this on Adult Swim and that took weeks of our lives. Right. It took a long time. Right, we couldn't find a shortcut, like, watching it on a torrent site or something. We had to do this. We had to do it in our real-time machine. Mm-hmm. Where we went backwards in real-time. Right. It took a while, but we eventually got there. But, like, you know, the the old DVDs t- technically are still out there, but they cost, you know, $50, $60 in order to get. And there aren't many out there, and, you know, it's it's just one of those things where... I feel like someone should have grabbed it and made it accessible by this point, because it's, like, um, I guess that's kind of true of all of Satoshi Kon's work. The only one that's really um, readily accessible is uh, uh, Paprika. I guess being his latest one, that's the benefit of that. But, like, if you look to try to get, I don't know, Perfect Blue, his first movie, like, DVD copies of that in English start at like $90. Oh, geez. And all the other ones are imports, so they're, you know, they might not have, you know, English subtitles or what you want out of it. So, right. it's just one of those it's one of those situations where I feel like 
Satoshi Kon would be- You have to settle for the famous Flash animation, Perfect Kirby. Right. <laughs> and, like, so it's just one of those situations where, like, uh, it's it's really unfortunate that someone so celebrated doesn't, you know, doesn't have their work represented in, uh, in like, you know, kind of American culture or, like, you know, outside of Japan. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like the UK still has a, a distributor for Paranoia Agent, but it's, it's just, it just seems very strange that, like, you know, some of these aren't accessible. And it's nice, um, in some ways that Amazon, with their, um, with their new anime service, has picked up some of these movies for streaming. So there's at least some oh, way that's to, good. some way to access, like, to access as far back as, like, Tokyo Godfathers, which is, you know, which is nice because that, that is, you know, a place for that movie to be. But also, that still means we're missing out on Perfect Blue or missing out on Millennium Actress. Like, there's, you know, there there are some gaps in there, and I'd really like to see those fulfilled. Because after seeing this, I'm really interested to see what he does with uh, with a more focused sort of art form. Because yeah. his his directing style and the way that he, like, cuts and frames shots is, like... there's. Just so much energy in this anime, yeah. which I really love. And, you know, like, it's it's got good thematic elements. And again, just like good, even it's like some really good transitions that I feel like within the confines of a film can be even more expanded upon because it can be more ambitious with more work put into it in total. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, he it, it really does show, like, Satoshi Khan's, like, you know, work and his effort and how good he was at what he did and it's a shame that more of that just isn't accessible because it also does have like things to say socially there you know they uh there there's a lot of talk about sort of his first couple movies sort of being explorations of the way that the male gaze affects culture and the way that we see like celebrity and we see things in here sort of like you know, societal complications with learning to, you know, accept ourselves and our problems and try not to push them away and things like that. And like Tokyo Godfathers is about the way that we define families. Like there's so much in there that he's, that like is, you know, something that he wants to say about Japanese culture that expands even further into sort of like worldwide culture that's being missed by these sorts of things not being um, easily accessible. But yeah, um, man, Paranoia Agent was a trip. It wasn't what I expected at all. No, not at all. Because I, I definitely expected it just from the way it had been described to be, um, I guess... Like a horror? Uh, yeah, or? a lot more horror and a lot more literal, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't expect it yeah. to be so... Um, so, like... Figurative. Figurative and sort of, like, uh, something that recontextualizes itself at the end as like, yeah, oh, I- well, you know, maybe none of this was real. Like it, <laughs> like the, like knowing that he sort of did, uh, like inception before inception with paprika, like it's like, sure, there's like a, a blend of what's real, what's not in sort of the effect. And that comes through really well on a first watch up to when things start to go crazy. And then it redefines everything earlier. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a very cool series in that way. Um and it's just it's it's a real like it's a real like art, you know, it's it's art. Like uh, I yeah, I feel like I've never really watched 
like anything like this before. Like not even just anime or whatever. Just I feel like I really have never seen a piece of media that like I've I've experienced like quite the same way where it it, it feels like sort of like I take it literally and then like by the end of it I just I have to take it figuratively or else like it doesn't make sense and then once right. I do it it changes the whole thing. Yeah, and I think what's what this also shows is that like uh maybe I should start getting into David Lynch too who is like who is uh compared frequently to Satoshi Kon one way or the other as sort of like these right. these masters of filmmaking and directing and sort of like uh I hear he's the sweary of movies. <laughs> Has anyone said that? <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, so like, you know, David Lynch as a director does sort of the similar thing where you you don't know what to trust about uh about, you know, what you're seeing as far as I as I understand. And that's I think that's something really cool that just is is like the sort of thing where you're not going to see that a lot, like sort of um you know, it's it's kind of a once in a lifetime sort of person that you meet that can do that. Yeah, but yeah. I I really enjoyed my time with Paranoia Agent. Like, uh, I try to spread these things out when I'm watching them, just so I can sort of like have a fresh perspective on them. But it's one of the series where, like, after every episode, it's like, well, I want to see the next one. Like it, right? Like it has that drawing power to you to make it really easy to binge. Yeah, like I feel like after. Like, for the first, like, five episodes, I was just like, okay, and what next? And what next? And what next? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, it was cool. I, I'm really happy that uh, I ended up watching this. Yeah, I am too. And I'm glad I, I, I watched it and was able to discuss it with a buddy. Like, we, di- we didn't watch it together. Right. But... We watched it um, in spirit together. Right, and we got to talk about it, because I think... Especially with a show like this, it benefits from sort of talking about it afterwards, sort of piecing our thoughts together. Because, like, you know, even as we're doing the recap, we're both coming up with like, oh, so that's what that was. And, oh, you know, th- th- suddenly that makes a lot more sense to read it this way. Right. Like, I feel like I honestly, <laughs> I-, I learned more about this show, like, talking about it with you than I did the first time watching <laughs> it almost. Yeah, I, I get that. Because it's definitely like, you know, you catch different things depending on when you watch and who you watch it with. So it's it's something it was something cool uh to to see out of this. And we got a, a fan mail about this, but I feel like we already uh, mostly talked about it. This is from uh Ristix. Ristix asks, mm-hmm. uh, "When you finish the series, the prophetic vision after the credits invites you to rewatch the series again. So now you're enlightened to certain details of the story." This leads me to my question, do you know of any episodes in particular that strike you more when you see the series again in this way? And I'm trying to think of, like, which episode is, like, the most evocative in a way that once you know that, you know, or once you have an idea that they're attacking themselves to avoid conflict, which one is sort of the the biggest surprise? Um... Well, I mean, I feel like the biggest su- surprise would probably be, like, episode eight, where, like, you'd be looking for, like, oh, well, if they were dead the whole time, then, oh, yeah. is this that? And But 
Um, I think maybe episode three for like the actual death because I don't know. Like I feel like there's a lot of ways to like read that. Like maybe like I I I think like maybe like Harumi might not even like have a different personality. Like maybe she's just she's living her own double life. Right, like she's actually just afraid of like this commitment that she's making right. with somebody that she feels like she doesn't really know. Yeah, okay, that's that's a that's not a way I had thought about reading that. But yeah, it could be seen as that and like, you know, sort of Maria is the side of her that kind of like wants to have fun. Like they say that that's the you know, she says she's the real one. So if we see that Harumi is sort of the mm-hmm. the, the public face that she gives to try to feel like she fits in more and is more comfortable, then there's definitely like a new perception to that of like having to try to like come to terms with who she is versus who she wants to be. And, you know, trying to, trying to kind of plant her feet in the ground is like, this is who I am because I'm getting married. I need this kind of thing. Right. And I think also like, not only the episode eight learning that um, Makoto was on that suicide blog, but then also realizing that it's possible all of these deaths were self-inflicted is a big surprise. Right. Because the fact that they right. see Little Slugger doesn't mean that he's actually there, but more like, oh, well, you know, this is the, you know, we think that Little Slugger left here. And, you know, the, the death of this kid, like, it seems like, oh, well, he wanted to commit suicide and maybe he did. Maybe he actually was able to, like, after having completed everything, but also, like, having sort of failed his sensational, out, uh, you know, right. le- leave. He is, like, like, emotionally, like, he's just, like, he's been torn apart by this police. And he just, like, I, it's understandable that he would have no idea, like, what to do left. Right, because if you want to commit a suicide early, it's like, oh, I want to go out with a bang, I want to do something sensational. And then to have that just completely lost because it turns out he faked it. You know, and they they finally push him to admit it, and he can't live in this sort of like illusion of grandeur. He, you know, he he's so he's lost his goal, and so he kills himself. Like that, I think is like a big one to put all the pieces together on. Also, um, I just wanted to say, illusion of grandeur is my favorite Super Nintendo RPG. <laughs> that's a really good name for one. <laughs> but yeah, um, uh, I think that's. All I can think of to say, is there anything else you wanted to, to touch on before we go? Um, no, I, I don't really think so. Um, I, I, I do think that this is a really good anime, and I guess if you haven't seen it already... Find a way well, to watch um, it! You, yeah, and I guess you could have watched, like, half of it instead of listening to us talk about it. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, sure, you could have. But you didn't. You listened to us, and we thank you for that. Right, you took the shortcut, and um, <laughs> the goo's coming for you, buddy. Yeah, watch buddy. out, little slugger's coming for you. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I, I think one thing that we touched on a little bit, but should be noted, is like, it's a really good English dub. Like, it's done oh, up there with, yeah. you know, the best of them. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a shame that I feel like Adult Swim's anime dubs haven't been that great recently. Like, watching this, like, shows, like, sort of, like, it feels like they've kind of fallen in some ways. But I guess this was made in, like, what, 2004? It's been 
over 10 years, so... Yeah, a lot's changed. Yeah, only something to be expected. And I think there's definitely a difference between then, where sort of, like, there's a handful of voice actors who who are doing it, and, like, doing it well, and now where it, people, people grow up wanting to do voice work in anime, so you have a lot <laughs> right. more kind of variable work as more people are sort of, like, they're not maybe trained actors in the same way that I think a lot more of the, the, the these um, voice actors are. And it's more of a it's 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 one of those things where, you know, eventually the chops will get up to more people having this sort of quality, but just like the voices in here are really evocative and work really well. Mm-hmm. And it's cool, yeah. But yeah, so uh where can people on the internet find you? Oh, um, well, I'm the J of Spade. You can find me at that Twitter. Um, um, just do at the J of Spade. I also have a Let's Play channel where me and Chorps have been Let's Playing Gravity Rush for um, probably around six months now. It's almost done. Also very anime. Right, very anime. And, hmm... Has it all been real? Whoa! Whoa. But that's at uh, the J of Spade LP on YouTube. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I guess that's about it. Um, yeah. And as always, you can find me at, at Tropsway, C-H-O-R-P-S-A-W-A-Y on Twitter. Um, and you can find Coco Disaster at, at Coco underscore Disaster on Twitter, like, uh, like the, like the food product, C-O-C-O-A. And, you know, from there, you can find our website, which is also cocodisaster.com, where we have the, the archives you can find, you can find our, uh, text, uh, you know, our text blog at Vanilla Blessing on Tumblr, where I just write about whatever I want, I guess. Um, you can find links to the RSS feed, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get podcasts. And uh, if you have the time, uh, it would be great if you could leave a, a review, a rating. And if there's anything that you think we can improve on or work on, uh, you can always email the, the podcast at chorpsawaysa at gmail.com. That's C-H-O-R-P-S-A-W-A-Y-S-A at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to look them over. Right. And remember, if we get a, a hundred reviews on iTunes. Chorps is going to eat an anime DVD. It's true. I'll just devour one whole. Right. Uh, well, I mean, you're going to put like locks and cheese on it. Of course, well, of you're course, not, an, I'm not animal. an animal. Jesus. <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, it's been great doing this with you, Jay. Yeah, it, it was a pleasure. Uh, even if it maybe ran a bit longer than I expected. It's very hot in this room. <laughs> I'm sorry. We'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. Uh, coming up next will be the seasonal coverage. Uh, Zane will be back and we'll talk about the upcoming, um, the upcoming fall titles. There's, there's a lot of stuff even just now that, that looks pretty exciting. So we'll be interested in covering those. But until then, keep your feet on the ground and, uh, avoid any bat-wielding children. I've been Chorps Away. I'm Jay. And sweet dreams. <laughs>